Deezer Originals Trailblazers DJ Fresh Hello, my name is Eddie Temple-Morris and welcome to another episode of Trailblazers, the podcast that goes deep into the lives of dance music's most impressive impresarios. And in these strange times of isolation and separation, it falls to me to introduce each episode of the new season. And this episode sees Nick and I talk to Dan Steen, a.k.a. DJ Fresh. Now, it was the last Trailblazers episode to be recorded before lockdown, and we were kindly invited to Dan's countryside home to do this one. Now, I have to apologise in advance for the sound quality of this one not being to the usual high standard, but while the audio quality isn't great, the fact that we've known each other for a long time and been so close uh, is, and led to a really interesting, honest and illuminating chat. Let's get into it. Trailblazers. Today's Trailblazer is a producer, DJ, musician, songwriter, arranger, record label boss, and our second luminary from the world of drum and bass. But this Trailblazer has expanded from there. If you poll drum and bass fans now and ask what the most beloved tune of all time is now, a frightening number of them will say The Nine by Bad Company. This will bring a smile to this man who is a founder member. But it was him, and not our last D&B legend, Goldie, who wrote and released the genre's first ever number one record, and then just to show he was no one-trick pony, he had Dubstep's first number one as well. Aside from all this, he and Adam F. signed D&B's most genre-defining stadium rockers, Pendulum, and he's living, breathing proof that nice guys don't come last. DJ Fresh. Dan, welcome <laughs> to Trailblazers. Thank you, good to be here. And lovely to be here in uh, in your studio. Mm. The, 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 the last person whose studio we recorded in, uh, you know, outside of the normal places we do these things, mm. was, was Fatboy Slim, was Norman Cook. Exactly, and that was a, a trip uh, to the seaside, and today we're in the countryside, and it's, it's nice to be out of London again, isn't it? Isn't it lovely, yeah. It's good, so thanks for making us uh, feel so welcome, Dan. We Pleasure. appreciate it, we appreciate it. So, uh, yes, it's traditional for me to dive in with the the first question and um, actually just before I do that a quick public service announcement I just want to say well, um, uh, full disclosure I used to manage you as DJ Fresh still do manage you uh, for your uh, role in Bad Company UK so um, so so I just thought I'd, I'd mention that in case anybody's interested look you've, you've had success hey Nick when are we going to get the money for that licence <laughs> <Just joking. Yeah. laughs> another well, time another time yes surely. yes yes that's <laughs> Well, you know what? That would be interesting. Documenting real life conversations between between artists and managers, actually, wouldn't it? My goodness, how entertaining that could be. Some of the I'll things. I'll go get the hacks. Or... Yeah, some of the how entertaining some of the things that get discussed there. But look, what I wanted to say, Dan, was you've had success as an artist, and uh, you know, and as a record label owner, and you've you've really had a, a great view of the industry from multiple angles. I wondered what what would be a key piece of advice that you'd give to to somebody who who wanted success in the industry these days in the same way that you've enjoyed it? So so I, I'd probably say in this day and age the most important thing that a new artist needs to be focused on, unfortunately, is social media, mm. Mm. Um, which is maybe a controversial... I feel as though you want to say social media I, first yeah, and, well, then, and I, then being I feel, talented. I kind of feel like being talented and making great music seems kind of obvious. Do you know what I mean? Or it's, it's such... Do you know what I mean? It's you, like, I'd imagine that any, anyone a... who listens to your 
podcast yeah. will take it for granted that you know that you have to make great music, right? At least I, I, I don't know. Maybe I just take that for granted. You know what I mean? But I think that's the kind of surprising thing—the way that things are going these days—that social media and having a, a presence outside of making music has become such an important um, driver. Yeah, and we were sort of just chatting about mm. this earlier weren't we mm, and mm, mm. about you know how a record label these days when a new artist gets brought to them the first question they often ask is well how many twitter followers have they got how many facebook fans do they have and um i think it's both a, a you know for, for me being a bit of an old school head it's a it's a worrying trend but it's also very much part of the way that young people relate to to, to people, you to know, the world. To, to people it they is. look up to, to the world these it, days. Yeah, it certainly is. Just the way that you approach releases as an artist has it changed from that point where you're just knocking out really underground records to the point where you're having big hit records? Has it been a very big change of difference of mindset? Yeah, I guess. I, I mean, I think there's kind of you know a couple of different strands to that for me personally in terms of like the way that music is released kind of relating Mm. more to what we were just talking about Mm. I think that the idea of creating a body of a work of work as we call the Mm. LP the album yes you know making a statement with it is something which unfortunately has become no longer such a viable option for for record labels for the most part for the most part not for for every type of artist certainly for electronic music you know um and so i think everything's become much more about having these succinct like big moments you know rather than being able to go hey guys here's like a little song here's a journey of different different emotions who i am and because you're right do you know do music consumers you know to a lot of them do they want that experience these days that journey that body of work thing or you're right are they just happy to get multiple sugar (laughs) i'm just just giggling because i'm just thinking of a word that i know you guys will have heard all too many times it's something Mm. like to me this is actually a word that comes from the old music industry the filler yes Yes, like the filler filler track. Yeah, I always somebody reviewed an album that I'd written and referred to one of the tracks as a filler. I always used a filler. Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't supposed to be a filler. That was supposed that, to be the fucking ham. I know. Yeah, <laughs> I, I know. But back to, the, to, to, your, to your original answer to that question, you, know, you said social media. You know, you are a private person. Like, compared to a lot of pop stars that we know and, mm. and met. So how do you interface with it all? I really don't enjoy um, sort of having to think about social media. And it's definitely something that I find harder these days with, you know, management, Nick not included, record labels, people around you wanting you to push things on social media. I kind of came from a world, especially in drum and bass, where I remember when I first started out, 
you would never ever see a picture of a drum and bass artist smiling in a photo. Mm. It was almost like if you smart, you know, you kind of knew that you just couldn't smile. Yeah, I don't know yeah. why. Yeah, you know yeah, I mean? yeah. It's why true. Not? It's really well, true. It, well, it was. I mean, it was a dark art when, first, <laughs> yeah. when, it, when drum and bass first came along. It was dark and it was urban and it was gr- grimy uh, in the old sense of the word. Mm. Yeah, there was mystery. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Which, which is now kind of missing. I always used to enjoy the mystery of somebody that I respected musically. You know, I, li- I like the fact that they weren't totally attainable. Mm. Um, that maybe, you, I mean, I say maybe you had to dig a bit deeper, but maybe you didn't even have to dig a bit deeper because you just, you dug through the music, you listened to the, the music, you loved what you loved about the music. I remember thinking with um, The Cure, who, who were a band that I was a big fan of when I was a kid, Half the time, I couldn't even understand what the fuck he was saying. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But I kind of liked that because it was like you couldn't understand the words. You kind of came up with your own interpretation of what yeah. the words meant. Yeah. And yeah. in a weird sort of way, there's a bit of a metaphor there for the way that we appreciate music. You know, when you, when you put too much granularity, too much detail, too much background around a piece of music, it's, it takes away the magic. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. To a certain extent, it does. I would yeah. agree with that. You know. We grew up with vinyl and we were pouring over every detail and wanting to know every word and wanting to know where it was recorded, who engineered it yeah. and all those little things. Yeah. And that mm. was the sort of information, you know. Mm. Don't get me wrong, Gangnam Style was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'm sure it would have been fantastically successful without him doing that dance and all the rest of it. Mm. I'm being ridiculous here. But Old Town Road is a, a good example, you know, of how something can just emerge from social media and yeah. that can drive pretty much everything about it yes. so it's become so you're, important you're right or there's the flip side to the coin which is that and you, we, I, we have to talk about this because as we record this it's only a matter of days not even a week since Andrew Wetherill died there's an example of somebody who didn't interface with it in any way shape or form and still was incredibly influential could sell out any gig he did could sell out a festival in which in Carcassonne in which he would only program <coughs> bands you know electronic art that nobody had ever heard of. And this is all without social media. But mm. the, the but mm. here, though, is that he emerged onto the scene in 1988 or 1990 and rolled on from there. You know, yeah. can... A big question is, can an artist in 2020, can the new Weatherall take the same sort of approach and come through to a similar level today? That's a really good question. Is there a, uh, a young, like, hot, up-and-coming artist now that refuses to engage in social media in the same I way actually, that we I or? actually went... I, I've a couple of times, actually, I could admit that I've actually gone and done searches on Google. I'd often search for things like this you're never going to find the answer for. But I've actually done searches on Google to look for artists that, that are infamously, that, you know, that have no social media... Mm. The problem is because of the Google search algorithm, you can't. You, you try asking that question, you get anything back but the answer to it. Um, but from from the little tiny bit of digging that I've done, I haven't managed to find any. And the reason I've done that digging is because I've gone through so many sort of periods, especially in the last few years, where I've thought I don't really see myself as that kind of person or artist, and do I fit into this world anymore? Do you know what I mean? To be honest, I think like. You know, I see the way that people use their phones these days, the ways that people experience media. It's like this constant bombardment of 
audio, visuals, billboards, everything all around you all the time bombarding you. And people's attention span is so, so limited. So by giving people these little snippets of your daily life or of your personality, you're kind of setting them up for the records. Do you know what I mean? I think that's how a lot of people see it. It's like you're, you know, this this little video of them running around an airport or whatever might be totally irrelevant and not even funny but it keeps you sort of like tuned into their channel so they can then present their piece of great music do you know what I mean yeah yeah yeah, yeah that's yeah. kind of yeah. but, but I'm personally not great at doing that and I think like one of the one things that personally I've really sort of picked up on over the last year because of the background I came from like I said where it was like you know you didn't smile didn't give too much yourself away and that was so ingrained into me from you know 20 years of being in drum and bass I, I think I read a book and someone was talking about social media in this book that I was reading and they were saying when you're talking to people on social media you need to just think about them as you're in a room full of friends and you're talking to a load of friends now the thing that's slightly at odds with that of course is that these people are not only strangers but some of them could and probably are Axe murderers. Yeah, <laughs> statistically. Well, yeah, very so. small, very small <laughs> portion. You know, yeah, it's all right if you're just an underground guy, because then you just, you know, one in a thousand probably isn't. But you, you know, get to being... Taylor Swift levels, and yes, yeah, that is, yes, yeah. somebody out there is going to be that follower that ends up, you know, just sort of sleeping in your in a in your bin or something, you know. Yeah, but, I mean, what what I've been really doing recently. Um, which is like kind of new. I mean, I'm I'm pretty friendly guy. Like I think mm. if you know anyone, I hope that comes up to me will find that I'll sit and chat. You know, assuming that I'm not late to get on a plane or something like that. You know, mm. and I like talking to people and interacting with people. I love getting feedback from people, that kind of thing. But on at least in a social media sense, I think I've traditionally been very like. You know, I'll, I'll read posts and whatever. I generally don't respond to that much stuff. And the thing that, that's changed for me over the last sort of year or so is that I've really been making an effort to just engage people that bit more. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It's been a really rewarding process. I feel like it's a two-way process because you feel like you you start to build these relationships with people and then mm. all of a sudden it's like you can imagine these guys are out there going... They, you know, it's like having it's like the traditional kind of we used to call them like street teams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Day, yeah, yeah. You know, and it's weird because that concept seems to have disappeared a little bit. But now more than ever, you've got the ability to build a street team. You know, you've got all these people that potentially can support you if they're on your side, and they can be out there playing people music, telling people what you're doing. You know, like a guy hit me up the other day and. Um, this is so bizarre, but I've been in the machine learning AI world a bit for the last two years. I've been working on this app because I think the concept of artificial intelligence is 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 granularly extremely complicated, like like insanely, you know, it's, it's like science, computer science, right? But the the sort of high level concept of artificial intelligence is based on some really simple concepts that if you can explain them in English, I think anybody can grasp. So I've been thinking about writing a blog or a book or something, because I feel, you know, I'm someone who's, who's been involved in tech on and off over the years since I was a kid, but <clears throat> having been away from it for a while, 
I feel like I'm in a bit of a unique position to have that perspective of someone who's not been, you know, in this, the computer science sort of mainframe. Mm. Um, so anyway, bringing back to my point, I was uh, tweeting, uh, I did a poll and I was like, if I wrote a blog or whatever about, you know, explaining AI like in English that anyone could understand, would you guys be interested in reading that? 70% of them were like, yeah, I'd love to read it. 10% of them or 15% of them were like, you're not interested. And the other 15 were like, no, you're not qualified, mate. Those were my answers, by the way. <laughs> God, that's what they would have really said. But anyway, so this one guy said to me, let me know when you're doing a gig in wherever it was that he was, right? So, so I wrote back to him like, you know, well, if you're, if I'm doing a gig, wherever that is, just hit me up and I've always got a few tickets I can give away and I'll probably just give you a ticket. And then he hit me back and he was like, that's so sweet of you, but I could never do that. Of course I would buy a ticket to come and see you. And I was like, well, you're definitely not buying one now. <laughs> so just hit me up when there's a gig and I'll give you a ticket. But just little interactions like that, that you feel people can go away from them really feeling like they know you a bit better. You're starting to get to know them. And then when they're standing in front of you, hopefully in a crowd, they're, they're actually kind of like a friend that you haven't met yet. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And yeah. I think that's, to me, that's the great thing about social media that I, mm. I, I look forward to exploring more. Do you know great. I mean? well, well, speaking about learning more. You mentioned, you know, being involved in tech since you were a kid. So let's rewind the <laughs> clock right back to where it all started for you. Yeah. So, so, you know, where were you? What was going on when you when you first started getting involved in music? Let's go back even further, in fact, to what, you know, when you were growing up. When did music start having a, an effect on you? You know, what, what were the first, what's the first thing that you were aware of, like, in music? So for me, the, the very first thing that I remember about music was um, <clears throat> my parents had a piano. And I remember sitting down, I, I kind of started to teach myself to play the piano. Um, and I remember my mum playing me uh, Flight of the Bumblebee by Rachmaninoff. And um, she played me some obviously beautiful piece of music, which I think, obviously I would have been sitting there like, you know, when you're a kid, you can really feel music as well. The emotion. And you were how old at this? At this Probably four or five yeah. or something like that. And um, she played me this piece of music and then she said, this is called Flight of the Bumblebee. I don't know, maybe if this is now going to... Maybe I wasn't four or five. I don't have kids, so I'm mm. really confused now. But I was obviously old enough to have a conversation. And um, I said to her, why is it called Flight of the Bumblebee? And she said, well, because, you know, you're supposed to be able to hear a flight of bumblebees when you listen to it. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, you know, Rachmaninoff wrote this music to make like a picture to describe a flight of bumblebees and me being the, the analytical geeky mind that I am sat there for hours and hours listening to this music trying to understand and you know and gradually I felt like I could kind of hear it and I, for me I was just just you know completely captivated by the idea mm. that you could like use something that you couldn't even see to describe something that you could, do you know what I mean? Or, or to describe even maybe something that isn't visible, like an emotion or some complex mm. set of, so you know, whatever. So, so yeah, I was just really, really blown away by that. Trailblazers. DJ Fresh. Thank you. 
later on, uh, my dad had a computer, uh, like really, really early computer that he brought and it just sat around in a box and I like rigged it up and started messing around with it and, and writing pro like very basic programs on it. Um, and funnily enough, at the time, I used to try to write programs that were kind of like you were talking to a computer, you know, where you'd like ask a question and there'd be a certain number of answers and then you'd, you'd press, you know, answer that one, then this happens and mm. whatever. So I've, I've always been super, super analytical, I suppose, and, and just very, very interested in how things work and how the world works. Um, and to me, I think, you know, I had to kind of make a choice between my interest in technology and how that could manifest those things and in music. And at that point in time, back in the very early 90s, technology was not what it is today, you know, and the options for getting involved in it were very limited. And then I, I was actually at uni doing a, a course in um, business information technology. My where dad, where my did dad you go to, to uni? Business part. Uh, Kingston. So I was there for a bit doing this course, and um, got involved in a pirate radio station, as you do. Um, the guys at the pirate radio station had had their tower block bus by the police, whatever they needed a new location to broadcast from. So much to the delight of my flatmates and my student <laughs> <laughs> accommodation, that became the radio station. Wow, you were running a weekend, pirate yeah. radio station from your with, uni with, digs? With Aaron Ross, who, who manages Jonas Blue. <laughs> right, and was this uni accommodation? Or like it was like a little shared house. A yeah. shared house, like a, yeah. Oh, and was your involvement as a geek or as a DJ? At that, at that, you'd have to ask them. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of both, maybe. I, I um, no, I was so I was I was DJing. I was starting to make music, um, and then through those guys, I met MC Moose, um, and he introduced me to a lot of people in, in drum and bass. But um, I mean, in terms of like musical background, before that, so my dad was in a, a band before I was born like he's South African and he came over set up a band unfortunately they had a number three hit I think in the UK um, and the girl who was really the lead of the band a singer called Roz left to have a baby and my dad no doubt partly because he was so you know tormented by this horrible situation of having had a number three record and then the lead singer just being like hey i'm having a baby and uh, i'll see you later <laughs> yeah 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 so it was always quite against me i think being involved in music and always especially as you can imagine that landscape in the 70s being a pretty cutthroat crazy place was always very against me um being involved in music but he did introduce me to a lot of really interesting music as a musician, including things like Jean-Michel Jarre mm. and Tamita, um, you know, a lot of bands as well. But for me, the the electronic, you know, Tamita, Jean-Michel Jarre thing was like a revelation for me. It was just like, wow, like one person can sit down and make this incredible soundscape on their own without a band. It was just amazing. So how old were you when you discovered Jean-Michel Jarre, do you think? I don't know, probably six or seven or oh, something right. like Also that. a very yeah. early, early know, one. Yeah, maybe something around that, just early, yeah. And would you say that that was, like, a game-changer for you, that you suddenly thought, oh, gosh, I could maybe get involved in this? Or did you ever think at that early stage, I want to do this? Or what's the record... 
that made you think that, that inspired you to be a musician? So that's kind of uh, a, kind of takes us back to the tech thing, actually. So when I was at school, um, a mate of mine had a Commodore Amiga, which also is the computer um, that Calvin Harris used to use when he first started making music. So I was actually doing a very similar thing to him when he first got into music. So um, my mate was involved in a bunch of like sort of hackers that would like hack computer games. And it was kind of like a little underworld. And um, the computer games had this crazy, what was called chip tunes. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've ever heard some of those old shit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like eight bit kind of stuff. Um, and I remember just listening to this music and just being like, what the fuck is that? It's just unbelievable. <laughs> the sounds were just so big and crazy. And, um, and I said to my mate, like, where's, you know, how do they make this music? Cause obviously whoever was making these computer game demos was making the music as well. Um, and he introduced me to this piece of software called Octomed. So I, which was what Calvin Harris apparently was using as well at the time. Um, and so I started making tracks on that. And in fact, the very first release that I had, which was through someone I'd met through the Pirate Radio guys, was made on Oxamed, like an 8-bit track. So, yeah, <laughs> crazy. When somebody says this track was made on Oxymed, that to me sounds like, you know, that you're on prescription drugs at the time. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's because it's Octomed, not Oxymed. Oh, okay, sorry. And what? I did do a bit of Oxymed in later life. I'm sure you did. (laughs) We'll get get on to that phase. You said that you're doing something similar to to Calvin Harris. I know that he was making R&B when he first started. Right, right. He was making probably quite bleepy R&B. Yeah, it would have been bleepy if it was made on Oxymed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at that time, what what was the style of music that you were making at that time? So uh, early kind of jungle... Yeah. Oh, so it was right. It was, yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. So I actually, it's funny because I just, I don't know if you guys saw the documentary, the One Nation, Three Decades of Drum and Bass no, I documentary, seen it. which no, just yet. went to number one on iTunes yesterday. Oh, oh wow. wow. Which Great. is a pretty special moment. Um, so Terry Turbo, who founded One Nation, put that documentary together. He's an actor. Um, and um, what was the question? Sorry, I've totally. The, yeah, that's a good good point. What was the question? <laughs> yeah, we're just having a conversation. Yeah. That's not really, not, not really questions. Because we, we, we were talking about Oxymed, and then we were talking I, about... Uh, you, you mentioned Calvin Harris, and I just said, what kind of music were you... What, what, you know, he was making R&B. What kind of music were you making at that time? And you said, you like, early drum and early, ju- early jungle. jungle. Jungle, yeah. So we've got, we've got the, the real impact at, at, like, potentially four years old. We've got Jean-Michel Jarre at, at sort of six... Can you name us a tune that when you were, I don't know, 15, 16, 17, 18, electronic music maybe, or something that made you feel, yeah, this is something that I want to be involved in? Or maybe what was your entry point into drum and bass? Because if you're making 8-bit drum and bass, Mm. like you must have been a very early adopter. Who or what was the the inspiration to you? I've remembered how this all came back Mm. together. So one of the things that... um, that Terry talks about in that documentary is a kind of phenomenon that you you guys, and I'm sure you, Nick, especially mm. being mm. an old school raver, mm-hmm. will remember, which was the uh, the M25. Sure, of course. <laughs> of course, <laughs> So mate. the phenomenon of, you know, a massive uh, queue of cars stopping at a petrol station to find out where the illegal rave was going to be. Yes. So I was, um, I was at school 
and I was at boarding school in, in Reading and um, there was a kid who was like a lot older than me in the top year and I became quite friendly with him and, and his room he used to have like the old flyers like Terry Turbo's yeah, flyers, flyers on the wall yeah. and at the time I'd never seen anything like that before you know when you were at school like people had posters like I had a mate who was Iron Maiden posters yeah. everywhere yeah. and yeah. You know, everyone had these posters but yeah. these posters were like a whole other <laughs> oh, yeah they were weren't yeah. they like naked women holding you, you know, know like a basket you, of fruit coming yeah, out of with planets head. spinning around <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely it's neo-psychedelia wasn't yeah, it that's right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you know so I saw this these posters and I'm like Jim what are those what are those what's that all about yeah so he's telling me about these illegal raves and he's like you know do you want to hear this it's called Acid House do you want right. to hear it I'm like yeah alright have a listen <laughs> yeah. so he gives me these tapes from these tape packs and I start listening to Acid House and I'm just like actually remember we had like a school uh, like a music concert trip and I had this one Acid House tape that I just listened to on repeat. You remember how you used to be able to keep going without suggesting anybody else's music, which I really liked, actually, you know, before before it actually said to you, no, you should now listen to the new Ed Sheeran tune mm, whilst yeah. you listen to something else. But anyway, yeah. so listening to these tapes over and over again and, you know, realising again that they were something that could be made by one person. And they sounded very similar to, like, these tracks that, you know, or the technology that I was using to make these tracks with. Um, and so I just started making these little tracks. And then when mm. I was at uni, met people that were on pirate radio and played them the stuff I was doing. They were like, oh, that's really great, mate. Like, you know, we could introduce you to blah, blah, blah. He probably so released it, you. So it began. Can you, can you remember any, any of the tunes off that acid house kind of tape or not really it was i do remember a... it was perception was the rave that was the first uh -huh. tape i remember having which is probably like 1990 uh -huh. i imagine could be but there were things like um there's one track which I, I still remember where the piano kind of went out of phase whilst it was playing Really weird, so it's kind of going out of, in and out of tune. You know, I, mean? like I wonder if that piano. was Indulge by Neil Howard, but that's a complete I can play guess. it on the piano, <laughs> but I don't have a, a piano to play okay. it with. You'd probably, don't worry. You probably know it. But um, it was kind of around about the time of like, um, I mean, I remember around that period some of the early hardcore records. I don't know if you guys would know any of those records, like, like, um. Living in Darkness by Top Buzz. Yes, yes, um, familiar with that. So like Charlie by Prodigy. Mm -hmm. Right, you know, of course. And, and I mean, this was probably the, you know, once that had started, so the very early stuff, I've got no idea what right, it was. Right, it was just stuff. Yeah. And then, and then, and then those <coughs> records became, became important to you. Okay. Trailblazers, DJ Fresh. And you would have been involved with that early Prodigy stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so for sure, no, we were, uh, you know, I was hearing that stuff as it was getting made. And, um, yeah, I remember the, the Top Buzz record that you talked about, uh, hearing that out and about. And uh, and then on, on the Prodigy record, for sure. I mean, that record was in demand 
uh, and record stores were calling me up at XL going, have you got this new Prodigy single? Everybody's, you know, coming into the store asking for it and we haven't even mailed it out and we haven't, no radio stations had it, but it, the record was in demand. And I remember thinking, God, how can this be? Kind of flummoxed me for a minute. And then, of course, it was those parties you were talking about, the Prodigy were out there performing that track live going, hey, this is our new single. And, and if that was in... Plymouth or Manchester on the Monday. Better hundreds they, I bet of kids. They didn't call it a single, though. Here's our new track or whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And And hundreds of, of ravers would flood into the record store going, Have you got this new I always thing? hate it when people say to me with about my music, they say the new record. And I'm like, right. this, this is not record. Mm. <laughs> this is a tune. This is a tune. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no, no, it was a, it was a, great, uh, a, a great little phase. So you're starting to make some music. You're in in that pirate radio space. What was the first piece of music that you actually released that came out <coughs> as, a, as a bit of vinyl? Um, I did uh, a track on a record label called Kicking Underground Sound, which hilariously was shortened to Cuss, mm. K-U-S. Mm. And what were you called? Uh, just Fresh, I think. Yeah, I think I was Fresh back then at that point. Tell us how that came about. Like, how, how did you find your name? You know, what what was the... So, so yeah, when I was on Pirate, the guys were like... I used to scratch this record that said Fresh. Not very well, mind. Um, and um... Was it the classic, oh, this stuff is really <laughs> fresh? It was, was it that actually, one? I think it was, fr- I think it was fresh. a Ronnie Size track. I think oh, it was okay. a Ronnie Size track called Fresh, but that okay. probably had the same song. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I was scratching that and the guys were like you know you've got to you've been playing now for the last few months or whatever and doing some crazy graveyard shift kind of thing um during that we used to get these calls from this guy it's a bit of an interlude but we used to get calls from a guy called one ring king i remember that so this guy used to call up and then always everyone would go to grab the phone and then after one ring he would stop and he always seemed to be around when I was playing One Ring King was seemed to be one of my biggest fans at the time well do you remember that that concept of like give us a missed call if yeah. which meant like if you're feeling this just dial up <laughs> let it ring yeah. what and then don't <laughs> and then I mean, leave it, it. Yeah. well maybe that's where One Ring King got his inspiration yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no that was that was a thing that was a thing. In the same way, Peter Kay, the comedian, I think, talks about, you know, the concept of, like, phoning your parents if you need to get picked up from the bus station. Like, call, and then let it ring four times and then stop. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's the that signal. Yeah, yeah that's the call. signal that your parents can yeah. go out and, like... This was back when phone calls used to actually cost money. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So it's a big it's a big change, you know. It's funny, isn't it? The One Ring King, I've never heard of that, though. I like it. So the I wonder what he's King doing these days. used to call up, and after a few weeks of that, they were like, you know, you need to give yourself a DJ name. And I was like, being the OCD nightmare that I am, I was like, no, no, don't, don't like inspire this indecision that could keep me awake for the next five <laughs> years. You know what I mean? And so one of the guys was like, why don't you call yourself Fresh, bruv? And I'm like, why? And he's like, you know, because you're always scratching that fresh sample in it. And I'm like, yeah. And then everyone's like, yeah, fresh, man, fresh. And, then that <laughs> and was it, it was done. It's, uh, done. <laughs> yeah. The decision was made for you. You were DJ Thank Fred, God. you were just Fred. <laughs> so you had your name, you had your tune. How did it get signed or, to, you know, to come out on vinyl? 
So I think, funnily enough, Aaron Ross, who I met through Pirate Radio, who, who now manages Jonas Blue, um, was on Pirate with me as well and took that to these guys, Bikey and Desi, who ran Kicking, Kicking Underground Sound. Um, and I released a couple of tracks with them, <coughs> released a track with um, with uh, MC Moose, who I met through the radio station oh, Moose. as well. Mm. Moosey. Mm. Um, then he introduced me to... DJ Ron, who's like a legendary yes. jungle DJ. Yeah, I know DJ Ron, yeah. And um, I released a couple of tracks with him and I met um, Lady Miss Keir from D-Light. Ah, yes. Um, and then I produced a bunch of tracks for her album. I didn't know that. Yeah. Did you know that, Ed? No. Ah, OK. You know what, though? I kind of remember... It was Johnny L. Did he do... Did he Was he somewhere in the Lady Miss Keir equation? I wasn't aware of that. I'll tell you who was, though. A guy called Gerald. Right, yes. A guy called Gerald was right, quite yeah, involved. Right, yeah, yeah, So, that's interesting. And I remember Keir explaining to me how Gerald used to record everything on loops of an old tape recorder. I don't know if you guys know that. So, he would record, like, had an eight-track tape recorder... You know, and he'd record the drums on one track and the other thing, and then he'd like splice the tape together and loop stuff and pretty hmm. crazy shit. And he was doing that back in, you know, nineteen ninety nine or whatever, when everybody else was, sort of yeah. like, you know, well moved on technically. But his music sounded amazing. You know, the the classic um, guy called Gerald anecdote is that Voodoo Ray was a, a sample of a of the phrase Voodoo Rage. But, oh, right. but there wasn't enough sample space left, oh, wow. so it, it came out as Voodoo Ray because the actual full wow. phrase there just wasn't the 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 you know the amount of wow. space for it to. It was Thank supposed God to be Voodoo that. Voodoo Rage. Hey, yeah, 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 yeah. Supposedly, <laughs> yeah. I like Voodoo Ray. Yeah, Voodoo Ray's good. Yeah. So you're rolling now, aren't you? You're you're working with multiple people. You're knocking out tunes. Was there a, a sort of definitive moment? Which sort of crystallised that that time f- for you? Where wh- I mean, what was the first time that you thought, "Wow, I've made a record and people are really embracing it, and I'm onto something good here"? I think, like, because I was starting to meet people through MC Moose, I met Kenny Ken, who was like, you know, at this point, like at one of the biggest drum and bass names, and and still is, you know, as a legend. And um, through Moose, I met him. Uh, became friendly with him he started playing my tracks you know so Moose would say to me you know I was like 18 at the time and Moose would come back and be like oh you know Kenny Ken loves this track and loves that track and you'd kind of be like oh man like I'd love to meet Kenny Ken but I guess you know when the time's right I'll meet Kenny Ken but in the meantime I'm just getting these snippets of information back from him do you know what I mean um, and then eventually met Kenny Ken and Kenny Ken would go and he was probably the first person to really play my music and um i remember the first time seeing him out in a club playing one of my tracks was just obviously mind-blowing do you remember what that track was that he played of uh, yours I've got, no probably no. something that never got released oh i, I see okay, yeah right and you'd moved on presumably from 8-bit now so basically what i did was i used my student loan um to buy a sampler and Akai. As you should with your student yeah. loan, right? I mean, that's what they're for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's better than spending it on drugs and alcohol, so <laughs> there you go. So um, so I used it to buy an Akai 1200, and 
rigged the the Atari with the Octomed, uh, uh, Amiga with Octomed on it to the 1200 and used that as a sequencer. Mm-hmm. So still very limited as to what I could make. Didn't have effects and compressors and mm. blah, blah, blah. Um, and then when I was working with Miss Kia, um, she paid me for my work with her and I brought my first proper sampler, like a decent full capacity sampler, an emu, um, and a mixer and decent speakers and mm. that was really when it started so then but this was all in a very short space of time probably a year and a half and then i met um renegade hardware uh boss clayton again through aaron so i do owe aaron quite mm. a lot actually thanks aaron mm. Big up, he's <laughs> one of my best mates so mm-hmm. there you go but um so he introduced me to clayton um and th- i had my first proper release on Clayton that probably would have been rewound in a club you know which is kind of yeah, well, <laughs> yes. like once someone rewinds your record there's no turning back yeah, <laughs> yeah like, you've hit the tipping point you're a junglist for life for that. <laughs> yeah, <sure>. Trailblazers <laughs> DJ Fresh So, yeah, and then uh, met Darren and Jason. Sorry, I've just got something witty to say. <laughs> so, so, basically, there's no turning back when the record uh, is literally see what turned back. <laughs> Sorry, it was slightly late, but, uh, you know, worthy of mention, I thought. You've just thrown my mind for Sorry, six. man. So what, what, what was the record on Renegade Hardware? So, the first one on... So, I wrote a track called um, Under the Pseudonym Absolute Zero... Right, um, and I can't even remember what that was called. It came out on a hardware album mm. called Quantum Mechanics, and then very shortly after that, I wrote a track called The Code with um, Jason and Darren. Um, and the code was and really Jason and Darren being Jason uh, Maldini and Darren White Debridge, yeah, from Future Forces. Mm. So they were. I mean, I wasn't really. That like at that point I was kind of doing jump uppy kind of stuff and I did I mean I was just sort of super excited about all drum and bass really at that point but yeah. when I, I started to hear the stuff that those guys were doing and I was just like this is so fucking cool do you know what I mean it mm. was just like raw and gritty and dark and horrific my parents hated it great perfect yeah it <laughs> yeah. is that's what you want man and so you were were you still in and around reading then or you were in london where where were so you so now it's in london yeah so you're yeah. in london and those guys are from london they were from south london yeah right right Vauxhall. right yeah there was some sort of some issue between them and clayton or something like that at the time um and we decided to split off and start our own record label and decided we were going to call it bad company um, and then the very first thing that we did together was, uh, the, well, actually, no, this is a lie because the first thing we did together was the code, but the very first thing we did together as Bad Company was the nine. Right. Good God. Wow. Cool. So, wow, I didn't know that. So the first thing that you did so was we the were, one that we were everyone... Just off to an absolutely impossible <laughs> start. <laughs> well, so, well, let's talk about that track then. So how did that track come together? So we were, um, so I still had a little studio up at my mum's place at the time. Um, and I was up there with Jason 
Um, we kind of had a rule at the time that we would always have like a hip flask of some sort of alcohol before a track was made. That was very important. <laughs> so we were suitably slightly drunk when we, we made the nine. And we'd been watching a film, and I can never remember what this bloody film's called, but we were watching a... It was like one of the early... It wasn't a Marvel film, but it was about a comic character. And actually, at the time, we were thinking, because we'd been watching this film, maybe we'll call it that. Um, and then we decided not to call it that for reasons that... For historical bad company reasons, I'm not allowed to go into. <laughs> but we decided to call it The Nine. So... Um, so yeah, I mean it was just it was just crazy and I think like the, the the weirdest thing for me about that whole period really the code was was equally not like the 9 is kind of remembered more but the code was bigger at the time um and I remember people saying to me you know I was like 18 years old or whatever and these guys who I really looked up were like fucking DJ Red who was this big like jungle DJ on Renegade Hardware and DJ Kane and all these guys and I remember one of them saying to me, like, you know, now you've got this massive track, like Goldie's playing it and Andy C's playing it and whatever, like, you know, aren't you worried about that? What are you going to do next? How are you going to, you know? <clears throat> and I just thought to myself at the time, I'm not going to, because I was terrified of that, you know, obviously. It was like someone sticking a knife in you saying that to you, do you know what I mean? It's, it's like all your worst fears. Mm. Um and, but I just remember thinking to myself, like, there's two options here. Either I listen to what he's saying, worry about it, and try and think my way out of this, and what am I going to do next? What is that thing? Do I, like, do I just keep that formula and try and continue that? Or do I deliberately not go for that formula, test myself to try and come up with something that's a bit different? Um, and then we did, and we we came up with the pulse, <clears throat> which like was another massive tune signed to prototype which was a really big deal at the time groove riders label so groove riders label was kind of like he would barely ever release anything and these tracks were like picasso paintings do you know what i mean mm. it was like if you had like a prototype release it was just game over you know yeah i yeah. still remember him playing it on radio one <clears throat> it's really anthemic kind of string intro very like emotional and it was a really special time. But I think, like, for me, that the reason I mention it is because I think it's a very formidable um, moment in my career because it sort of, like, set me off on this path of not wanting to be restricted to just doing one thing. Mm. Because once I'd kind of seen that it was possible to have more than one strand of, like, success with music in terms of people's feedback, it made me sort of less afraid to branch out and try different things um, amazing so at this point let's hear some music which which of the bad company uk tunes would you like to well maybe do? maybe the nine <laughs> we have to well, i mean we have to play the nine because i mean in the, i mean in the intro i you know i said oh if you polled drum and bass fans but the thing is there was a poll the last poll yeah. that i remember mm. of drum and bass fans the, the nine came out as number one uh, yeah so well, let's, you know. let's give it a listen right now huh trailblazers dj fresh I 
Right, so that's the nine. Uh, what I'm trying to get my head around is you were told, uh, you know, where do you go from here? Uh, you know, and then there was so much pressure. It seemed like a very, like, sort of glass half empty thing because you basically had a hit in your underground drum and bass world and someone's saying to you like you know this is a really bad thing and you're talking about oh this is like a knife going in me like <laughs> that just seems weird to me because you that seems like that that was the a, a spark to a piece of dry tinder you know yeah, it was yeah, all yeah. about to blow up I mean you must have felt um, not like somebody put a knife in you at that stage you must have been feeling really excited surely about how things were developing I think you know it's like you know, I, I never really sort of um, expected to be, be able to be a career musician. Do you know what I mean? It was never something that I either aspired to or thought was possible. Do you know what I mean? I'd never really been that great at playing any instruments. You know, like I kind of could... I, I've always been sort of like a, comp a creative person and like I'd sit at a piano and write stuff since I was tiny but it was never technically particularly good. Do you know what I mean? I was never a technical musician. Hmm. could never really play any instrument that well. Um, and I think the thing for me was like, you know, the, the being able to sit down and create something in an electronic environment where you get to build every little block and there's no sort of like dexterity involved. You know, it's not like, fuck, I just fucked up that note. You know, I didn't play it fast. You know what I mean? It's like... It's a mental process rather than a than a sort of physical process, um, and really just like the idea that I could then turn that into something that you know I could have a life and you know hopefully kids one day and a house and all that kind of stuff out of just never really occurred to me. So I was very I think nervous at the beginning of like you know fucking it up. Do you know what I mean? To be honest, um, and even then I'm, I think like. Something that, like, Nick knows about me because, <clears throat> you know, we've worked together, but I'm, I've always kind of been a bit sort of on the fence about being a musician and, and not wanting to be sort of, like, uh, put in a box, really. Do you know what I mean? Because I just feel like creativity is such a such a wide palette. There's so many things. If you're a creative person, there's so many different things that you can do. So both in terms... You know, so to have somebody saying to you, like you know, now you've done this thing, like, what are you going to do next? Like, you know, are you going to do the same thing again? Because if you don't, like, it might, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. so it was just something that sort of really kind of terrified me a bit at the time, yeah. Well, so you say you didn't think that you were ever going to be a career musician or a career producer. What did you think that you, at that stage, what did you think you were going to be? What was um, your life? Absolutely not. You were just winging it at this stage. How old were you at this at this time? Um, well, so like sort of 18, 19, you know, but right, I mean, okay. but I guess maybe 19 by that point. But like um, I did go to uni to do business IT. Business was because of my dad. Um, IT was because I was interested in computers. Mm. But, you know, at this point in time, computers were uh, these big white boxes with like green screens that couldn't show pictures or anything. Yeah, 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 apricots. And, yeah, so and it was very, comp, yeah. and I remember like my dad said to me, because when I was doing, started, you know, really focusing back on tech again a couple of years ago, my dad said to me that when my uncle had come over from South Africa, he's like a doctor, and he came over and apparently said to my dad, like, you know, you should really encourage him with that interest that he's got in computers because that's going to be the future mm. and my dad was just completely like what like and you know it's it sounds weird now but I think it was very 
normal at the time to to totally be justified in thinking that there may be no future with computers. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, I wasn't really um, sure what I was going to do, but I just mm. knew I was interested in computers, and then all of a sudden it was like, you know, hey, you can make this crazy music, and hey, we like it, we'll release it. So it was all a bit... I didn't have no idea what I was going to do, really, mm. yeah. Mm. So Bad Company UK really starts... Uh, you know, to to hit some momentum, I suppose. Are you then starting to travel the world as a, as a DJ for the first time? And how how did you find that? Yeah, so I got a job. I was working um, at a, a place in London as a sound engineer. I got a job as like a sort of trainee sound engineer, um, and um, I don't reckon I was that good. Uh, but one day I got asked to cover a gig in America for Johnny L in Washington DC um, got flown out to DC I think I'd done I think we'd maybe done one gig before this point somewhere in Europe um, <clears throat> found myself playing on this festival stage instead you know, been, of Johnny L was supposed to do it but, but in L. the end it was just you on your own or with the me co- and me and actually Mick from oh, Bad Company okay right yeah. With your first gig in America, I guess. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. In Washington, yeah. And I just I called up my boss from uh, who I'd had an argument with the week before. and called him up from America and was like, "Mate, I'm in America at a gig playing in front of like two thousand people." And decided that I'm not don't want to work for you anymore. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, "Fair play." <laughs> Understandable. Yeah. You were a sound engineer at a live venue or at a studio or at a at a um, at a club. Yeah. At a club, Doing right. like live bands, like cover bands. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 So, right. Yeah. And then, so yeah, what did you learn from from that phase of of starting to see the world and starting to. DJ, you know, did it affect your your future record? Well, did it affect your record making approach for, for stars? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, you know, obviously, the I think one of the things that's really key about um, performing with electronic music is the, is the is the feedback loop, you know, and something that I've actually we might have time to get onto at some point mm. something that I've really missed the last few years mm. I've never even realised how much it affected me but you know when you're sort of in that loop of like it's almost like as you're making music you're not just making a piece of music you're making your sound and that sound is being partly dictated by you and partly dictated by the reaction you get when you play it out. Yeah. So you go and you play a track out, maybe it doesn't go down, maybe you need to change something, whatever, but every one of those experiences sort of helps to form your sort of musical personality in the studio, right? I yeah, think. I agree. So, um, so I think that probably... <clears throat> really started to help to, to to shape during that period, you know, mm. doing those first gigs abroad, um, and just like the, you know, the, I think like for me it's very hard to, I, I take it so for granted, you know, having done twenty years like like you, Eddie, you know, of like touring the world, and you just it becomes so normal. But I remember flying to Germany, which goes to show that I'm probably a bit older that I'd be thinking of things like this, but. I was flying to Germany 
and the biplane took off. This flies the driving. I remember looking down, like out of the out of the aeroplane, and thinking, like, this is what the guys that were flying over Germany from from England were seeing. You know, this is like what they were doing. They're flying across the channel, you know, mm. to yeah, Germany. Yeah, yeah. And it was just like the whole the whole sort of experience of of travelling like that was just such an incredible thing to experience, you know. I, I think it still is, to be honest. Obviously, international plane travel is the norm. It's become very normalised. Millions of people, you know, have done it. But yet, when you're on a plane and you look out and you just see amazing Arctic tundra or whatever, <coughs> it's... it's it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Even uh, more incredible when you look out and you see beautiful Thai islands. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, that's yeah. amazing as well. Oh, that. man. <laughs> yeah, no, I love a bit of that too. <laughs> but that obviously, yeah, I mean, that obviously sort of wears off. But for me at that point, that was that was all just, you know, incredible, you know, going around. And I think, like, you know, being 18 and 19 and being one of the youngest people in the the clubs, you know, now I'm kind of probably hopefully not still one of the oldest but getting closer to that do you know what i mean mm. um so that in itself was just really really exciting you know so so what was the next significant change for you sort of uh, in your in your musical journey was the was the next big change setting up your own record label or was it maybe parting company with the, with the bad company guys and striking out on your own yeah, I guess. Yeah, we'll have to cover that. How, how did how did Bad Company come to an end? Or how, you know, let's let's, let's um, document that. Well, we wanted to so so like the the record label. We were releasing these Bad Company tracks, and at the time they were doing pretty well. Like financially, it was making really good money. I mean, all, all our money would go back into the record label, and we'd buy studio equipment and whatever. Um, but you know we were making really good money I was like sort of 21, 22 or something like that Um, we um, we were sorry I've totally forgotten the end of Bad Company UK yeah so sorry it's like when you start thinking about these memories it's Mm. just fucking so much shit comes back sure sure. (laughs) so um, so yeah so we were we were releasing these these tracks you know, and we were selling, you know, sort of like, I literally, I can't remember one selling less than 10,000 units, right, on vinyl, which now is mental. Yeah. But, you know, 10 to 20,000 units of these 12-inch singles. And, um, but I, I always kind of had this sort of, uh, I guess, like, sl- slight entrepreneurial kind of drive and always wanted to had friends of mine that were running labels releasing you know stuff from other artists and like the idea of building a brand and doing something that was a bit bigger than just my music and the bad company guys so at the beginning we were talking about this all together and the other guys were interested in doing that as well but it was all a bit like well we're called bad company recordings we are bad company we've only ever released bad company records like what are we going to do so we set up like a sister label called Square One. The idea being that new people are at Square One and maybe yeah. we can release that music. Sense. Yeah, 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 that works. <laughs> so, See what you did there. So we then we we found we signed a track um, by DK called Barcelona, 
um, which was then picked up by Alpha Magic and BMG mm. um, and went top five in the UK. It was a big track. Really it was cool. big. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately had a bit of a bad time with the intermediary that had sort of organised the team up with BMG. Nobody ever got paid from it, including, I found out the other day, the original artist. Oh, no. Um, so we had a bit of a bad experience with that. Um, and then that that wasn't why we split up or anything, but I think we were just already pulling in different directions. It was like I wanted to start something that was about kind of like, you know, other working with other people. That was kind of my main drive at the time. Um, I think D-Bridge was like he had a, a very specific like musical direction that he wanted to explore that was quite different to what we'd done so far. Um, Jason and Mick, I think, just wanted a break from us too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I think what happened was that at, at one point I was kind of really keen to explore going off in different directions and stuff musically as well. So basically, because I was being very productive and creating a lot of music there was a bit of tension because there was all this music that I was making and I also had the studios at my place and it was starting to kind of become musically too much really about what I wanted to do and what I was doing and the others were saying to me, understandably the others were like you know you are not bad company you know we need to release records that are by all of us together mm. And I was like, well, fucking come down to the studio, then it makes some fucking music, <laughs> you lazy stone bastard. You have to cut that out. <laughs> Nick knows Can we water. keep it in, really? Come on, we're documenting history. This is history. It's fine, it's fine. Nobody's going to what? Listen to it. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, nobody's going to like it. Nobody's going to care. They're not going to deny it. It's history. Nobody's going to sue. No, no, no. It's fine. So, no, so yeah. Yeah. have enormous arguments about it because I'd, imagine, I'd be like you know can yeah. we can you guys come to the studio so yeah. we can make some music then in that case yeah well you know we'll be around like in a couple of oh it's blah blah's birthday da, 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 da. Sure. and to be I guess you know maybe it's just everybody was just genuinely pulling in different directions and maybe yeah. the process of being in the studio just wasn't as vibey as it used to be or yeah. maybe they felt that I had a I was too you know, domineering in the studio, I had my own ideas, whatever it was. Yeah. Um, but just gradually it was becoming harder to get us in the studio. Yeah. I was making more and more of the music and it was sounding less and less like the bad company that all four of us was together. Yeah. Um, and then ultimately I said to them, look, you know, we need to find a way out of this. What about if I start releasing stuff on Bad Company as fresh Bad Company. Yep. So at least that way I can release whatever I want and doesn't bother you guys, you know, you can still release the Bad Company stuff. And the answer to that was no. Yeah. So I basically had to leave. So right. that was what happened, yeah. And, and you know, as is so often the case, I, I've only realised in the last couple of years that that uh, big philosophical one everything changes doesn't it uh, in life you know just it, it's part of the part of the dna of being human is that everything's going to change band relationships you know friendships home surroundings etc and so 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 a change in in your life here um came around um and then what was the what came then musically from you yeah what's as, the tune to yeah, soundtrack this moment where in time? you became 
either the last Bad Company record or the first DJ Fresh record? Probably, like, so probably Planet Dust, which is a Bad Company track that's still one of the bigger Bad Company tracks, which I did on my own. Um, and Darren really didn't like it at all. And we used to have, like, I remember when we released it, he really didn't want it to get released. Um, and, you know, Andy C was playing it every set, everyone was playing it. It was like enorm- this enormous tune in the scene at the time. And I was like, dude, like, I get that it's not, doesn't sound like you, but it's massive and everyone wants to play it. We, you can't, like, not release it. Um, and it was really just, yeah, like, you know things like that that ultimately just led yeah. to this bottleneck where it's like something's just got to give here sure do you know what I mean? so let's let's so, let's have a quick listen to that trailblazers dj fresh Planet Dust, Bad Company UK, and 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 now a new a new era for DJ Fresh. So, what was what was the goal as you entered this new phase? So, I mean, you know, com- coming out of a situation where all of my sort of income, I mean, I was only twenty three, was only twenty three at that point, but you know, still. I mean, didn't have, like, kids or anything like that going on, but still needed to pay my way. Um, So it was a little bit terrifying, because I'd kind of, at this point now, I'm, like, fully committed to music, really. Um, You know, had only, you know, people wanted bad company, but we'd split up. Um, Wasn't really sure. But the good thing was that I had some bangers. Mm. (laughs) <laughs> what I've learned some bangers. Is, yeah. as long as you've got some bangers all right. it's going to be alright no, I, I agree with that <laughs> <laughs> served me well so, um, so basically the agent who was looking after Bad Company my mate Caroline at Unique Artists took me on separately under my, under my, under DJ Fresh. Yep. I changed my name from Fresh to DJ Fresh because okay. I figured at that point it was all a bit producer DJ was a se- slightly separate thing and mm-hmm. I wanted people to know that I was DJing as well. Sure. Um if only I'd realized what that was going to set me up for, yeah. maybe <laughs> would have gone a different route. But anyway, so uh DJ Fresh all of a sudden um had become like pretty friendly with Andy C who'd been supporting our tracks a lot him and um Mampy Swift DJ Swift were really supporting me musically so the new tracks that I was making those guys were playing out heavily and DJ Hype and whatever um and so actually as this was happening as well um, Bad Company had just put together a live show called Digital Nation um, and bizarrely this very quite exciting it was relatively low budget but quite exciting live show at the time for the drum and bass world came to an end almost as soon as it started we spent a year putting it together we found a drummer who Paul Codish who went on to be Pendulum's drummer and later mm. my drummer as well mm. um, and a guy called Kabar who was singing and we did our first Radio 1 show and due to a whole load of 
politics at the time, that was kind of really the the, the final straw and nail in yeah. the coffin for the yeah. band. Yeah. For whatever reason. So um, at that show in the audience at Radio 1 Live in Maida Vale was a certain individual called Adam F. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> had you met Adam before? I had, yeah, but I'd met him... I actually met him out in Miami with a bunch of other people and he largely ignored me at that point, so I kind of hadn't, hadn't been in that endeared to him. Mm. Um, then he came up to me after the show and was like, mate, you know, massive fan of what you're doing. You know, I was a massive, massive fan of what he was doing. I mean, Adam, especially at that point, and just in general for anyone who likes electronic music, is a legend. Um, you know, and at that point, he'd just come off the back of his chaos stuff with Red Man. He was doing, like, hip-hop stuff, wasn't he? The right. big orchestral yeah. hip-hop stuff, America. right. Yeah. yeah. And everyone, obviously, in drum and bass wanted to work with him because it was, like, this guy who's super revered but also hooked up with all the hip-hop guys mm. and, you know part of that whole thing and hip-hop and drum and bass have always had a bit of synergy as well so i think like you know most drum and bass um djs liked hip-hop as well and so adam was like a you know like kind of like a celebrity in the dnb world and, and we must just mention how our different lives overlap because yeah. of course i well not of course but i'd signed adam f to positive so yeah that circles yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you know yeah, and all of that yeah. stuff was so I'd worked closely with him but this is you now meeting him for the first time yeah interesting yeah, yeah. yeah. and yeah. such a different style to you like you know in drum and bass he was yeah yeah very yeah. different wasn't he yeah yeah very very sort of like musical and instruments cleaner and, and yeah, woodier yeah, 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 and you yeah, were like yeah. dirty and gritty I was like guitar pedals <laughs> and shit um, so like so yeah he I think we were just both like fascinated with each other like Eddie says like coming from very different musical even though it's drum and bass we were different sides of the spectrum yeah um, and he was saying to me you know I've got this chaos thing I've been doing I think I did a remix for him at the time as Bad Company um, and he said you know I've got this chaos thing that I've been doing <clears throat> doing the stuff for the label we went out and had dinner and got chatting and I was like you know I've been thinking about setting up my own label and he was like what's your label going to be called and I was like it's going to be called Breakbeat Punk and he was like, oh, we you know I've got chaos. It's like, it'd be cool, wouldn't it, if we could do a label together? All <laughs> oh, right. Like, well, that's, that's how it happened. <laughs> yeah. That's oh. how it happened. This is, it's oh. like, the, that, that, that's the second bit of the jigsaw. Like, I had a jigsaw moment just a bit earlier uh-huh. when Dan was talking about Planet, uh, planet Dust. And that's yeah. just like, that's why Exit Planet Dust ha- happened. You know, so like, <laughs> all of these, like... It's lovely getting. Yeah, you know, that's what I think I love about this podcast is just filling in little bits of history like it's that. It's crazy because I wish I could find the. I think there is some artwork actually somewhere, but the first, I did one release on it, which was called Mutated X, which was a remix of a track by DJ Trace called Mutant Jazz. Yeah, um, and um, the whole the idea with Breakbeat Chaos was that there was going to be this sort of like brand this artwork which was like an american baseball helmet with kind with like a mohican okay on top of it so okay. i had that done and that was the first cover so i was just starting to get my whole you know like what it was going to look like mm. and all the rest of it mm. suddenly here's adam f and you know he's sort of talking about starting a new label so um so he's like you know what can we call it and we were like threw a few names around and we we're like what about breakbeat chaos brilliant yeah 
Great. And you're like, well, that's what kind of name is that? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> that's a great one, as yeah, it turns out. Absolutely. Got so, it. Uh, so so that you're, you're having dinner, that you decide to set up the label, and then, what, yeah, what happens next? What, what, so, what, what, what was your... Well, yeah, I guess, what was the first, what was the first release on, on BBK that you were really... That, that really kicked off? It was some pretty sort of underground-y stuff. There was a track called Daleks, um, and there was original Jungle Sounds, which was quite big at the time jungle um and um so the thing was that we when we were writing all this we were, sorry we were in a restaurant and when we came up with this idea adam had a napkin and we were writing ideas down on it and we wrote the the, the release schedule for the first two or three releases down and drew what the artwork was going to look like and all the rest of it decided to use the artwork guy that he'd used for Chaos. Very hip-hop-y. Very very street arty. Yeah, 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 yeah. of course. And to sort of stick with that thing that had been working for Adam with picture discs and really trying to kind of create like a visual identity as well as the music. Um, And so the first couple of releases were, you know, mostly Adam and I or combinations of, and then I think... I think the first thing that we signed was Pendulum, I think. Well, that's it. I was gonna, that was going to be my next question. You can't talk about Breakbeat Chaos without the story of Pendulum. So, so and was it Another Planet? Was, no, that was the second one. What was the first? It was what? Voyager. Uh, no, it was Another Planet. It was yeah, Another Planet. Because I remember, I, I, I remember see, my, my interface with, with, with this was I saw, I booked... Aston from the Freestylers to play one of my nights. I can't remember where. And he dropped this record and I just, I, I, I shut myself and I went up to the stage while he was playing. I went, what the fuck is this? And he went, oh, it's Pendulum, man. It's this new thing that Adam and Dan have signed. And I was like, my God, this is fucking incredible. And that, that was my, you know, that, and that was my entry point was right. he, he just played another planet. Couldn't believe it, you know. And then there was a change. So yeah. how, how did <laughs> incredible? So how how did you find those guys? Because yeah, I mean, that's the question. The, 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 you know, they they kind of changed the game in in drum and bass. And you're such a pivotal part. of Yeah, them. I mean, we didn't. I can't take credit for finding them, but we'd heard they they did a track called the Vault, which was on Doc Scott's Thirty One Records. That's right. Yes, um, and, and, and a remix. That. Um, for a uh, pack of wolves, they did that pack of wolves that thing. Nightbreed. That was, was a bit later. later. Yeah, oh, okay. they did. They did do something else at the time. It was called. It was something very. It was weird, right? So, um, so they'd had that track, and they'd done another track. I think it was still grey, which I kind of liked, but felt like it was a little bit kind of quote unquote Australian sounding in the sense that it didn't sound like the kind of thing you'd hear in a UK, like one of the UK producers do. Um, and so I just, I said to Adam, you know, like if we could, if we could get those guys, cause you could hear how talented they were, but bring them over to England and get, and really just try and get them involved in the UK scene. Cause you could kind of hear like, you know, that they, they were insane, but at the same time, at the time, the music was a little bit left from like, I mean, it was all, it always ended up being they've always been left, right? I suppose, Mm. like, you know, which is their musical kind of personality or whatever, but we just kind of felt like if we can get them to come and live in England for a bit, we can really sort of, like, ingrain the 
the hardcore brav vibe into them. <laughs> and, and so did you did you suggest that to them? Was it yeah. your suggestion? Why don't you come over to the UK? Well, I had this. I was living in this flat in Hampstead, um, and I just said to them, "Look, you know, if you sign to us, like I'll put you in this flat. You can come and live in England." will hook you up with everybody and whatever and just kind of just explain to him really what you know what me and Adam had been thinking and we were also very excited about the art because I'd been you know I'd just come out of this doing this live thing with with Bad Company and was very influenced by like the prodigy Mm. um, and was kind of thinking you know it would be cool because I think just when we were talking to him on the phone Rob was saying oh you know I'm in a band and like Gareth plays the bass, not very well, but like he plays the bass. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Gareth. He's, he's amazing now. Such a good bassist. But anyway, he's a good MC as well, actually. Um, so, like, they were telling me about being in a band, and I was like, well, fuck, man. You know, like, I think they, they, they'd heard the, yeah, they'd heard the, the, about the Digital Nation thing as well, and they were really excited about that. And I was like, you know, maybe, like, you know, we can push the idea of you guys like doing a band and whatever. That could be really mm, cool and like a mm. bit like Prodigy and blah blah mm. blah. Um, so, so we we got them over um, and you know introduced them to Paul, who had been going to drum, drum as part of Digital Nation and now was just like my mate who was looking for a gig. Basically, I mean, he wasn't looking for a gig because he was a sick drummer that people wanted to work with, but. He was available, you mm. know. Um, so and so that was kind of, and then I'd also just met a guy called Joe Oakley, um, who had come up to me during an interview, right that during the closing. It was an interview about the end of Bad Company, and came up to me during that interview and just just blew me away with, with the way that he was. And I gave him a job, um, and he ended up sort of running Breakbeat Chaos and really running a lot of Pendulum's day-to-day activities and ultimately went on to manage Pendulum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so we've got, to play, we've got to play a Pendulum tune. Yeah. What, would you, what, 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 should we, uh, what should we listen to? And then there was a change. <laughs> I know, exactly. So you're not really giving me much, much choice here, Freddie. Uh, I'm giving you a choice. Sorry, man. I was, just, I, was, I, was ribbing, I was ribbing more than anything. <laughs> Well, yeah, what 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 do you want to play, man? This is your, you know, this well, is about I'm you. I'm going to throw a little spanner in the works here. Another planet. <laughs> <laughs> Trailblazers, DJ Fresh. Want to hear more of the music? Don't forget, you can listen to the tracks in full by heading over to Deezer.com, where you'll also find special Trailblazers playlists. Deezer. Deezer. Originals. Trailblazers. OK, so like we say, we can't, we can't really talk about Breakbeat Chaos without mentioning Pendulum, but there's another thing which I want to get into now, which is that, and this almost loops back into Nick's first question, which is, I remember, you know, when we first started hanging out and you were on a boat that the drum and bass community and the web presence of the whole thing was dogs on acid. Mm-hmm. And that was your, you know, your... Actually, I've never asked you this. Why was the, the drum and bass community called dogs on acid and not breakbeat chaos? 
And it, it always struck um, me as weird. So what happened was that <clears throat> Dogs on Acid originally was um, part of the Bad Company website. It was like a forum. Ah. A bad Company website and had started, well, I guess when we left, when I left Bad Company, it was already starting to kind of like burgeon. Um, I had quite a lot of users on there. And I said to the guys, like when I left, it was like the one thing I really want is my is my forum because it was like my baby mm. um, and because I'm a geek and I like all that kind of stuff so they let me take the forum and then I decided to call it Dogs on Acid because I just wanted to give it a name that people w- would remember do you know what I mean yeah, so. yeah yeah and that's interesting that you were really interfacing with that then because we started out this whole conversation with you saying expressing your reluctance at being online and talking to people and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, right? So that's what I mean. Like, recently I've kind of... I feel like I'm starting to... And it's early days, but I feel like I'm starting to find myself in social media. And that self is kind of harping back to the days where I used to just do what I now do, which is just, like, talk to everybody. Do you know Mm. what I mean? But I think for quite a long time, I was just... Especially with all the pop stuff going on, I just wasn't really sure how I was supposed to deal with that, do you know what I mean? And especially with a lot of these people that were sort of coming to me online, they weren't even really, like, fan fans. They were, like, people that listen to Radio 1 or Capital and like Hot Right Now, do you know what I mean? And don't know anything about my history or drum and bass or any of that stuff. Um, But, yeah, you know, so I, I was always very into the idea of building a community um, and the thing that was really exciting about drum and bass and Dogs on Acid at the time was, you know, if you take yourself back to a point where there was no internet like there is now, there was no Facebook, nothing like that. And, like, people had no way, really, except through agents and people phoning up on the telephone or maybe sending a letter through the post. I mean, mm. it's just... <laughs> it's unthinkable. <laughs> I do remember having an office and getting phone calls from... I remember we had a call from a guy called DJ Oxidising Agent once who wanted us to sign his track, and I said no, just on the basis of the name. <laughs> <laughs> DJ Oxidising Agent. <laughs> yeah, no. So I don't care how good it is, you're not calling me up, calling yourself <laughs> oxidizing agent and expecting me to sign your records. <laughs> so like so yeah, so it was very it was really hard, you know, to connect. And so we were kind of um me and Joe were sort of talking about, you know, how can we how can we turn this sort of like forum into something that helps communities in different parts of the world kind of like communicate with each other get gigs in different places and spread news and I, I kind of came up with this idea for, for like how we were gonna network the news from all the different sort of scenes around the world which we never really got to implement and I still think it would have been brilliant if we had done but we got we got to to do some of the ideas we had like one of the first mp3 stores and we had like a dub plate section, which was really cool at the time. So you'd go and hear the latest dub plates. Mm. Um, and Joe helped me a lot with that and then went off to manage Pendulum and had enorm- a really incredible guy and had an enormous amount of success with that. Um, but so it was always something that I was really interested in. Um, and then it was a phase where Breakbeat Chaos was getting very busy. Um, we kind of needed help. We couldn't. We weren't really generating much money because the only way to generate money at the time was through advertising, and you know, you, 
your target market is drum and bass kids, most of whom are students who don't have very much money and, you know, so it was difficult to monetize from. And also back then, you know, it's like we had, a, we had like, say, I don't know, 150,000 registered users and 50 million page views a month, unique page views a month, which is shitloads. But, like, at that point in time, it was very, very hard to find people that understood what the potential was for that. Do you know what I mean? So I said to... Um, <clears throat> I said to... What did I do? No, so I was on my own at that point. So I wanted some support some other people to work with on the site decided to go and find some people that I thought could be a benefit to you know growing the site um and so was friends with Groove Rider hit Groove Rider up hit Adam up who just started the label with me <clears throat> and said you know how about we work on this together and we'll I'll give you equity in it and Groove can push it on Radio 1 and we can use the power of Radio 1 which will be really helpful obviously within the realms of legality around yeah, of, course. Yeah. <laughs> of course so um so that was cool um but um there was someone that groove wanted to bring in who i didn't totally see eye to eye with had different ideas about direction of the site and ultimately decided to leave um and focus on the record label so that was i, I, I then had a actually a few years later i had another Start up with a guy called Chris Parry. I think we've spoken about it. Started XFN. Well, and the Cure was my ex manager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, my yeah, God, yeah. 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 Also, uh, used to run Desire Records, really? which, uh, and I used to promote some uh, stuff on Desire. Yeah, Charles B, Lack of Love was wow. classic acid so you house knew Chris. tune. It was probably on your on your tape that you kept listening right, to. Right, so you knew, you knew Chris. I've met him once or twice. Yeah. So, what did you do with Chris Parry then? So <clears throat> we started, um, a friend of mine is an author called uh, Chris McNabb. Um, he's like a, a, like a hacker, basically, security analyst. Um, okay, we came up with this idea, Chris was telling me about how he could stop people from sharing music on, on the peer-to-peer networks, in theory. Um, and this was like during the explosion of LimeWire and the uh, early Napster. It's actually pre-Napster, I think, at that oh, right. point. And um, so, and I said to him, you know, if I if I got you some money and we did X Y Z, like you know, what could we actually do something with this? And so Chris invested in it, and um, <clears throat> we had clients like EMI, uh, Buena Vista, who owned Disney. Um, and we had a, a few really big contracts, like six-figure contracts, but, like, it was so expensive at the time to maintain. It was like a, it's like a battle, so, like, anything yep. like that. So it's like you come up with a solution, you take down a load of stuff, they find a way to change their algorithm so that they defeat your one. And, mm. then, and so it's like you just have to have this army of developers and servers and just cost an absolute fortune and we were going into the record labels and we we were the only people that could do this um quarter marshall all those Mm. guys and we and we were like you know we've got this thing it's the only hope that you've got of stopping music piracy but it's going to cost you like 200 grand a year each or whatever Mm. and a couple of them went for it and most of them were just like we're cutting our budgets at the moment we can't afford to spend 200 grand on something that may or may not like so we unfortunately went under. 
Right. You were ahead of the curve. <laughs> ahead of the curve, man. And, and musically speaking, was this around the time of Exit Planet Dust? Is this around the time when you were working with Mary from the Gay Bikers on Acid? Oh, and, right. and stuff? Yeah. Um, I guess, like, that was... Yeah, that would have been sort of 2006, probably. 2007. 2007, maybe, yeah. So that was, yeah, probably about the same time as Escape from Planet Monday and Nervous with Mary and, yeah. Oh, Escape from Planet... Yeah, I was mixing you up with the Chemical Brothers. I've, I've hybridised ex- Exit Planet Dust. And, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, well, should we, well should, maybe we should play something from that record. We should play something from your um, uh, Escape from Planet Monday. Um, you thinking maybe nervous? <laughs> well, I, you know I like you nervous. By mentioning what? the records, it's the one we play. How about we just? Yeah. Well, and, well, I just, I just, I, you know, I just remember that one because I, what about I supported the it. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I know that track. Yeah, that, that was on that record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I yeah. played that on, uh, on. I remember playing that on XFM. I mean, is, did, was that your favourite record on 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 the on the Probably, album? Probably, yeah, yeah, I would have thought so. All right, well then we should play the immortal. Let's do it. Trailblazers, DJ Fresh. So I'm interested in how you became DJ Fresh, the number one hit maker. Can you tell us what happened? It's almost anybody who has a number one single in the UK once has done something pretty incredible. Somebody, anybody who has a number one single in the UK twice has done something really, really notable. And I remember you saying it back in the uh, at the front end of this discussion, something like, "As a kid, I was really analytical and I really wanted to figure out how how things work," or something like that. And it's almost like you cracked the code, didn't you, of how to have the biggest crossover success possible and I'm interested in how, how you how I'm interested in, I'm interested in how you did it yeah um I mean I definitely like talking about cracking codes I guess like one of the things that's always been really interesting to me with music especially with drum and bass like drum and bass traditionally it's always changed like over time you know, more so maybe than some other styles of music where the production will change a little bit, but the core of what it is is the same. Probably to most normal people, it all sounds the same forever. But, like, to me, it sounds like it progresses. Um, and the thing that, like, I think is really interesting for me about making electronic music is trying to trying to sort of, like, take whatever it is that makes it something infectious and something that you know makes you dance but refine that into like its simplest kind of like formula do you know what I mean I just think that it's weird because so much of the stuff I've done has has got so many fucking layers in it and it's so overcomplicated and that stuff is usually not the stuff that actually does does so well Mm. but usually the simpler it is the simpler like you can and, and there's something about drum and bass, I think, like, good drum and bass, the classic drum and bass tunes, they're so simple. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's just like a bass line and a beat, but the beat has to be perfect, and the bass line has to be sick, and there has to be something about it that gives it a lot of identity. Um, 
and so so that's definitely something that's always really fascinated me about it you know and on something like hot right now you know were you were you gunning for a number one record no i mean so well maybe <laughs> what's the name what's the so, name wasn't well, she wasn't a thing gold that. dust yeah i mean gold dust was the first one really like gold dust actually okay. sold more than all of the other ones oh, right enough. but yeah, that didn't course, just yeah. didn't chart yeah. as high it kind of hung around didn't it for a long, yeah, long time yeah we did um so what had happened was i'd actually decided at that point to make the move that i made three years ago and go back and focus back on tech yeah like i've been doing these other things but doing music but wanting to do that as well um, and so I decided to make that move and I had some health problems at the time. I had like um, a pretty rare tumour called an insulinoma and I was having these really weird like symptoms, like mental symptoms, right? So I would just be talking to you and I just and you'd be talking to me and I wouldn't be I just wouldn't be able to talk. You'd ask me a question and I'd just be like, uh, uh like that. Ooh. And it would turn out to be really, really low blood sugar, like like coma level blood about to go into a coma low. Right, okay. And it was because I had this weird tumour. And like the last thing that happened before like, it got diagnosed, I went to see a million different people and it was like, oh, it could be this, could be that, could be that, blah, blah. Um I was on coming back from a gig in France and I was in a car with um, Lady Miss Trouble, who's like a drum and bass MC, and started having one of these crazy episodes. Then went and got in a car, tried to drive home and passed out on the Hammersmith flyover. <laughs> Caused the traffic jam at night time. Right, woke up luckily I didn't kill anybody. Woke yeah. up at in, woke up behind the wheel with the radio. I remember sort of waking up and you could hear the radio playing and being like that's not good i shouldn't be asleep right now <laughs> what is going on so i wake up and could hear police sirens and the I, a massive tailback behind me police coming down the other side of the road or whatever um the police came around that my clutch for some reason had broken probably because i'd fallen asleep my foot half on it so they were like what's going on and i'm like uh my clutch is broken and they were like, okay, well, we'll call the AA. And I was like, okay, cool, safe. And so, you know, I mean, seriously dangerous. But so then, um, and then I fell asleep one night, like not long after this, like I fell asleep, woke up with a paramedic in my bedroom with a like syringe in my arm, injecting me with insulin. We still at this point didn't know what it was, but he'd figured out that I had low blood sugar um, and I was in a coma. And he managed to wake me up with this injection. My girlfriend found me, like, passed out. Yeah. And so he woke me up. And, and then luckily after that, I was diagnosed very quickly. But so it was a really weird period because I was going through this, like, insane, you know, these attacks I was having. No one knew what it was and traveling all over the place as well. Um, and then um, I was in hospital and I just made gold dust and ministry had signed the instrumental and said... You know, we think it'd be really great to have a vocal on it. Um, what do you think about working with Miss Dynamite? And I'm like, I love Miss Dynamite. Let's do it. So I'd written like part of the hook already, and went in the studio with her and like the the whole Gold Dust. The, I think the main part of the Gold Dust hook. So I think she'd sent me some bits, and I think the, at the end of Gold Dust is like this running, 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 running away. So she'd done that bit already. And there was a couple of little pieces. So I wrote the main, like, it's like gold dust hook. And I had, like, 
<clears throat> the harmonies and stuff in my head. So I remember singing her the the thing, and I could kind of hear it. And I was like saying, you know, it's it's it, it doesn't sound that good when it's just on its own, but when you do the harmonies, it will make sense. And then I was kind of trying to describe the harmonies to her, like they were like little light bulbs going on. <laughs> so it was like, you know, it's like gold dust. And like, what was the harmony again? Like, gold, gold dust. No, I can't remember. But I had <laughs> we'll, to sing we'll like to all it. the original. We'll listen to it, and it will become. Let's listen it to it. It's so weird because you take the harmonies out, and it just would be totally flat without that. Do you mm. know what I mean? But so anyway, so. She sung that, and it was kind of like... I remember playing it at the time in some of my sets, and I'd never really had a totally full vocal tune before in my DJ yeah. set. Um, but people seemed to like it, and I didn't really think anything was going to really happen with it. I was felt like I was kind of on my way out a bit, was planning on doing something else. Um, and then I was in the hospital having this tumour operated on, and my mum came to see me and she was like, you know, Goldust is like number 20 in the charts or something. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and um, and then the next week it was still at number 20 or mm. whatever. And mm. then it just stayed there. And it was just like, you know, at number 20, number 23, number 24, whatever, for yeah. like a year. Yeah, yeah. Um, and even I think like I met Andy Varley, who then went on to manage me when he took me on. I think it was still still in the charts, you know. yeah. Um, like Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, <laughs> I, so, lo I love the, tr the, the triplet synths. That's what yeah. I loved about it. I love the fact that the track was in four four, but you just had the it was almost Led Zeppelin like that. You had this like triplet going on over four four. So, so from a, out of a time of, of of chaos in in the health area and tailbacks uh, all the way from Hammersmith to wherever, let's just listen to. Uh, to Goldust uh, right now. Trailblazers. DJ Fresh. Sends me one that goes, it's like Eddie is coming. <laughs> did I really? Yeah, you did. did. I still got it. You've I still got, got it. You have actually got one that, that you've Mate, got. I, that you've got play that Miss now. Dynamite saying, <laughs> saying it's like Eddie. Well, you hear him coming out of your speakers. And I, that became part of my intro to my XFM show. Well, that's so and then cool. and when I supported the Prodigy one day, mm. that got put into this like my sort of DJ intro, which I hardly ever use anymore because I hardly ever DJ has got that. So the that beginning must of mean it. that I've got a version. Yeah, well, I think I'm you gave you gave a few versions. You gave a few Knowing versions. Me, though, to... I would have made one for you guys and not made one for myself. <laughs> <laughs> Always the business. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah. So after that, I guess. Um, okay, so what happened was Ben Newman, the uh, director, had made the video for Louder, and it was amazing. The video, obviously, I had no input into it whatsoever. And I remember seeing it the the first time and thinking. That is, I mean, because it was like, you know... Hold on, it goes Gold Dust, and then what was the next release after Gold Dust? It was Dust? Hot Right Now before Louder. Louder. No, oh, Louder. Louder, yeah. Oh, Louder. Louder came after... Okay. Oh! Yeah. So you had the first dubstep number one before you had the first drum and yeah, bass yeah, number yeah, that's one. Yeah, classic thing about it. Oh, I've remembered it completely. Like, <laughs> yeah. I just assumed Hot Right Now was before, but no, it was Louder. That's right. And, like, Flux Pavilion was around, was... Yeah, was, yeah, yeah. Like, Josh was just this kid... 
you know, I got him on my show when he was still at school. I think he's, wow. he, yeah. you know, and we were discovering him around about the same yeah. time. You know, his, yeah. his dissertation was a Freestylers remix, as I recall. Wow, yeah. Which is what really made him. His yeah, dissertation. He's and it, and it kicked off. It just, it became, you know, and then he ended up working with you yeah, on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so so we did, so Ben Newman did the video and then um, Lucas Aids had seen the video, which was, at the time had gone kind of viral, relatively for the time. And um, Lucas Aid were like, you know, we want Goldust, basically, but we want another one. And I'm like, what? <laughs> excuse me? <laughs> but basically, we want you, to, you and Ben need to make another Goldust and it needs to be as big as Goldust and the video needs to be better than the gold dust video and we're like no problem leave it with us we got this and then i'm like fuck <laughs> so luckily i had this i had this instrumental that was that i'd started um which was the louder instrumental um and i got sean evans down to the studio who originally was one of the people that m was going to maybe try and co-write with me on gold dust um <laughs> And I think I had, like, part of the hook already written when she got there, and then we wrote the rest of it together. We were quite drunk that night as well. It was all written very, very quickly. Um, really crazy thing, actually, about that record that I've told a few people, which I think you guys might find interesting, although we've been blabbering away for about nine hours and you probably want to go home. <laughs> but um, I basically thought, because we just had Goldust had done so well, and I'd mixed this thing, we recorded it in one night, like in, in my, basically my bedroom, my mum's house was in between moving and stuff. And um, it was recorded quite badly, there was a lot of noise and whatever, and everything was slammed into the red and blah, blah, blah. So I was like, you know, I'm going to take this seriously and go and get a professional, proper top mix engineer to deal with this. So I went and found the guy who'd done the Swedish House Mafia record that was that had been massive, the one that came out yeah. around about the same time. Mm. Um, we spent an absolute fortune paying him to, to re-record everything and spent three days re-recording every single harmony. It was like the most perfect recording that you've ever heard in your life. It was brilliant, right? And then he mixed it down and it was the most brilliant perfectly mixed song that you'd ever heard and it just sounded like absolute fucking bullshit yeah 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 <laughs> and i listened to it again i listened to the other one and i'm like this one just sounds like it's alive and yeah, it's like yeah, full yeah. of vibe and this one is per technically perfect but it's but just like it doesn't a have it yeah yeah yeah, that's yeah. Right. yeah these things are, are alive they yeah. are, and some, mean, sometimes, you know, that it's the human thing, that errors, how many times have we talked about this, little glitches or little things that make make a piece of music sound human. Yeah. And it sounds like what your guy did was got rid of all of the, <laughs> you know... All the, the humanity. All the humanity, yeah, yeah, yeah. It just yeah. made it so perfect yeah. that it, it didn't reflect... It was the, no longer louder. There was the, no the vibe, yeah. 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 <laughs> So then it was... Back to square one in a way, was it after that process? So that so so basically we had these two versions and it was funny because ministry I think were just kinda like just we love it, just give us the fucking record, stop for what you do, what you doing. <laughs> and I'm like, no no no, I wanna just go the extra mile here because mm. I've just come off the back of this and this mm. is my moment to really give it you know, it's like all your life you've just been throwing things out there and suddenly there's the opportunity to actually really give it a hundred percent. Yeah. And unfortunately a hundred percent was just too much. So um, 
I gave it to to ministry and they were like no we prefer the other one as well so we sat that one off and went with the original one yeah hmm. for, for, with all its quirks and distorted recordings and it went to number one yeah went to number one mm. um it was, Lala was like a, it was like in the cinemas because Lucas they were doing this massive campaign mm. one won quite a lot of awards I think the the advert and the campaign and everything yeah and then Amazing the pressure moment. was really on. Yeah, <laughs> well, let's, let's hear it. Let's have a quick listen to that. I've not yeah. heard louder for, for ages. Sure. Trailblazers, DJ Fresh. So from Louder and your first number one, and you diversified because obviously you started out and are known for, and even at the time your Twitter handle was DJ Fresh D and B <laughs> at the time, and you always had been that. But I knew and you knew that you were much bigger than that or wider than that, that your brush was wider and your palette was more colourful than just drum and bass. And so I think it's a rather wonderful that you that your first number one hit wasn't in drum and bass. It was at 140 BPM on the half beat. Yeah, it was very cool for me. Yeah, really cool. I mean, Pendulum had um, kind of come out of the gate and I think we're probably the first drum and bass producers to say, hey, it's okay to do other genres as well, you know, and I'd been wanting to do other stuff for ages. So when Pendulum released, um, I think it was, what was it called again, Out Here, or they did one track that was the, the B-side of Tarantula or something, that Freestylers and... Oh, Fasten Your Seatbelts. Fasten Your Seatbelt. Um, so for me at the time, that was a kind of like, you know, it's okay to not just do drum and bass, Drum and bass is very, can be very, very guarded, especially back then. It was very like, you know, stay true to the craft, like don't, you know, don't pollute it with things. Don't mess that with aren't the pro, the, yeah, don't know, mess with it. Don't fuck with it, <laughs> keep it real, man. So it was kind you know, so that was kind of tricky. And I think Pendulum had sort of proven that it was okay to do that. There was a way that, as a drum and bass artist primarily, that you could do other stuff as well. Um, and I'd actually started doing some stuff with Decline and Wizard around that period. I did a track with um, Spider called Steam, which was kind of like a similar sort of vibe to Tarantula, but breaks and whatever, yeah. you know, similar big spidery vocal thing. Um, and so, so I'd kind of already at that point sort of been like, okay, I'm not, I'm no longer going to be just drum and bass, you know. But when, but then. Um, yeah, then Louder <laughs> happened. Yeah, well, no, but then after Louder, but then Hot Right Now was was then your next single. Yeah, so Hot Right Now was um, the instrumental was written maybe a year or so before that, and obviously Ministry were like, you know, what's the next thing? And I'm like, well, I've got this instrumental. Great, where's the song? Um, just need to work on that bit for a minute at yeah. the moment it's just an instrumental um, went back in originally with Sean because we'd had such a great writing experience on Louder and started writing I had so I basically I think I had like the I had the idea for the main hook like you know you're only in it because it's hot right now hot right now mm. um, and that was all I had and I called Sean up and I'm like I've got this sick like hook and got this really cool backing track it just needs like verses and finishing um 
And so Sean came down. We tried a bunch of stuff. I ended up taking out all of that stuff and couldn't get it totally right and ended up going in with um, some producers called The Invisible Men, who I became really good friends with, really talented guys. Um, and they helped me write the verses for it. And then I wrote the middle eight. Um, and then they said to me, you know, we've got this this girl that, like, we think is going to be really hot, like, people are excited about, called Rita Aurora. And I was like, it was kind of funny at the time, because it was like we had, like, we had this recording of, uh, I think it was Jason from The Invisible Man who tends to vocal their ideas, singing, like, in falsetto with auto-tune turned up to 100%. <laughs> so it's kind of like a robot. It's like, you know what I mean? It's absolutely horrible to listen to. It was like a drill in your ear, yeah. do you know what I mean? I remember playing it to Ministry and then being like, uh, you know, like, yeah, you know, maybe with a bit more work, whatever. Um, and so they were like, you know, we were like, we've got to find the right singer for it. And they were like, well, we've got this girl, Rita, and they're telling me about this girl, Rita, and I'm like, have you got a, any video of her or something? They're like, yeah, she's just done this thing on YouTube and played it to me on YouTube. And I was just like, oh, man, this may be really emotional. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, yeah, just like, wow. That's like it, you know what I mean? Um, and uh, I think it was like, I can't remember what she was doing, but it's just like she was just perfect for the track. Um and so, so yeah, got it down to the studio and recorded it. And then I think, like, she just signed to uh, Columbia in the US and Jay-Z was her A&R. <laughs> so Sarah Stennett, who managed her, had said to me, so we've now got this recording of Rita sounding incredible on this tune, but nobody knows who Rita is at this point in the UK. And... Um, so Sarah's like, yeah, you know, like, this could work, but we've got to run it by Jay-Z. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on here just in my life? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so so, uh, so she's like, yeah, so I'm going to... Anyway, I'm going to... You know, you guys are here. Like, I'm going to I'm gonna be speaking to Jay in, like, you know, half an hour or whatever. So she's, like, gone off, and I'm, like, sitting there, like, fucking shitting myself. And then she comes back into the room. She's like, yeah, I played it to Jay. He loves it. He said it's good to go. So we're like, great. And yeah, that was that, number one. So why, why did you get so emotional thinking about that? Um, I don't know. I guess just because, like, I guess just because, like, at the time it was so, you know, Rita was just like this kind of young, sort of cute girl that nobody knew who she was. Um, and I and I was just trying to find the right singer for this tune, and it was just like the beginning of like something really important for her, and yeah, and also for me. Do you know what I mean? It's just like a really special moment when you think back to it. Especially, I just haven't thought about it for such a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very special moment. Very special record. You started a career that is, you know, massive. Mm. Let's let's enjoy that tune. It's incredible. Trailblazers, DJ Fresh. I 
I do tend to get quite emotional. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, man. I'm just thinking That's I've been interviewing here once to someone before and burst out crying. And <laughs> oh, I've done that before. Gosh, I, I cried in front of Gary Newman going through his one of his records. Really? Yeah. <laughs> That um, led, led to a lovely relationship with both him and his missus. But anyway, so hot right now. So you've now had two number one singles on the trot and you are just like the hottest thing, like one of the hottest things in, in UK production and in, in, in pop. And you've really crossed over to this, to this uh, world of like you just said before we played that record. It's like, what the fuck's going on with my life? Like I'm talking to Jay-Z and stuff. And then... Because I know you, you know, so it's 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 weird doing a, one of these with somebody that you that you actually you know know and love. Because you you sort of fell out of love with the whole thing, didn't you? You kind mm. of the glamour and the, the the sparkliness. You're in a place that everybody wants to be mm. at this stage. You mm. know, every kid with a with a sampler and a, with the Pro Tools or you know whatever wants to be where you are, and you're there, and you're thinking, I don't really want to be here anymore. Yeah, I mean, I guess the thing is, like, the way that we always used to... <clears throat> the way that we used to make music and the way... You know, I'd always been self-released. I'd always had my own record labels. It's always kind of the master of my own destiny, really, for better or for worse. Um, I'd never had a manager before. I wasn't used to that dynamic at all. I was always used to... Ha- I had a great girl, Katie Tiebo, who ran Bad Company for years, who I probably should have carried on working with, to be fair. Um, and like just the whole that dynamic the management dynamic the record label dynamic um, just the treadmill really I think it's like you know when you're making these kind of more underground things you're 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 just totally focused on like I want to make this track that's going to smash up fabric this weekend Mm. or you know I'm going to make this track because you know Andy gave me this idea Andy C and I want to make you know make something for him that he's going to love or whatever um and all of a sudden it was like <clears throat> it was like um you know what's the next thing the whole time so there's um, pressure there's there's a lot of pressure on you yeah i think it's just the classic you know <laughs> the classic story that you hear yeah. a million times it's just like the pressure um i think like it's kind of confusing as well because like nobody at that point had really done anything like that from coming from that world before you know you'd had like Ronnie Size who'd been he'd had some some success he'd had a Mercury yeah. prize you know but in terms of like that sort of chart hopping success mm. you know uncharted territory yeah 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 because yeah. yeah. like you say Ronnie didn't do that Goldie didn't do nah. that you ended up being the guy that, that cracked that yeah, nut yeah um, but it was like you know, but then it's like once you're there, you're like, what can we do? Like, where do you go from here? Do you know what I mean? It's like, you know, that was for me, I think, always my dream with Pendulum, with everything else that we were doing was to try to try to get drum and bass to, to the top of the charts. And then it was like, now what? Is it, mm. is it, <laughs> was it something of a curse, The you know, the level of success? Would it almost have been... You know, because that is the problem, isn't it? If you've had a couple of number ones on the bounce, really, where from here, same again or down, really, isn't mm. it? Because you can't go up from that. Yeah. Do you think I it mean, was think sort of like, something of a curse or not? Is that over? I think, I think, I think it, you could see it as a curse in the sense that it had a negative impact on me in some ways. 
I think that it it, it was a, a, anything but a curse in terms of, you know, both the effect it had on my life and the opportunities that it's given me. Mm. I think, like, there was a thing at the time where it was, like, um, this pressure to maybe go to America. And because I'd seen so many people fail in America, like mm. even Pendulum, you know, mm. who smashed it, mm. but more as a band. So, that, again, it was a slightly different thing. And they hadn't really been able to crack America either. I mean, I guess the Prodigy kind of did. Well, oh, they, they did, yeah. No, they fat the land number one. You know, really? but again, different era. You know, really embraced. Um, you know, by MTV. You know, the different sort of different stuff happening. But you are right, of course. That's you know the exception, really, or one of the exceptions. Because so often people go, "You hot, you're hot in the UK. You've got some big records now." Try and crack America, and so and for record labels, incidentally, the you know record labels, independent record labels, have success in the UK. Hey, we're going to open up an American office now. We're going to try and have it, and just lose you know as much money as they've made in the UK. Lose it trying to crack America. So you're right. It's a it's a it's a very challenging thing to do. Yeah, and so I think like so we had hot right now and louder. Um, and louder was being played on the NFL, something or the other, like mm. all the time, right? And yeah. So there was definitely, and the Flux Pavilion remix was doing really well in America. Yeah. And there was this sort of like, you know, they are picking it up. You never know. But everybody had always thought well, drum and bass isn't going to work in America because it doesn't have that sort of like, it doesn't have like rhythmically and everything about it is just not seated in American no. culture. Do you know what I mean? No. Yeah. Um, and so it was like, you know, do you want to go to America and tour America and try and do that thing? And I was just like, I just don't think it's going to work. Do you know what I mean? And then on top of that, I signed a deal with Columbia. Columbia then for what, I have no idea why and still don't know why, but didn't release either of those records in America. So even now, you can't download Louder and Hot right now on iTunes. I'm happy to say that's something I'm doing about something about this very week. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so they, they basically didn't release it. And at the time, I remember saying to my manager, like, what, you know, why would we not release like, one of the biggest records in the UK of the year in America? And the answer was, well, you know, because they think it's kind of like you've missed the boat with that now and you know we'll do the next thing and whatever and you can make something that's more suited to America anyway probably and whatever um, I think that was a massive mistake I think that I think that track should have been released out there such a shame but anyway so I think I kind of felt like at that point I was kind of like I don't think that this is gonna I'm, I, you know so hopefully one day somebody will make this work in America but I don't think it's gonna be me right now um, and so then it was really kind of like, well, what, yeah, where do you go from here? Do you know what I mean? Um, and so I guess I just sort of like thought, I, I focused a lot on my live show. I had like a, a live band. We did a lot of like, you know, big looks, festivals and, you know, and that went pretty well. Um, and then I decided to focus on DJing. So I decided to sort of leave the band and focus on DJing for a bit. Are we at next levelism stage yet? Yeah, this is probably all around next. I think I think next levelism was at the end of Fresh Live. So Fresh Live lasts for about a year and a half. And and we should give a shout out to Paul Kodish, who you, yeah. whose name you dropped earlier on, because you know he he was the one who, as I understand it, formulated the Pendulum live show. You know, having done it with Apollo Four Forty, 
and then I'm definitely not going on record saying that, but like, no? possibly. Okay. Well, that, that, <laughs> one thing I can that, tell you about Paul is that he he's he's a force, you know. And I think like the same. I'm sure it would have been the same with Apollo 440. It's certainly the same with what I was doing. He's not just a drummer who comes along and like fucking bangs drums. He's someone that gets a group of people into a mindset and propels them into something. Do you know mm. what I mean? Like to me, Paul is like. You know, if I ever wanted to do a live band, I'd want Paul in it. You know, it's got nothing to do with his drumming. Even it's just like he knows everybody. He knows all the tour managers, and just and just an all-round fucking great guy, man. Yeah. He's one of my best mates. Great guy, and it was just so awesome to get to work with him because we'd had all these years together. He'd been been with Pendulum, left Pendulum, been kind of a little bit sort of up in the you know lost in the woods for a bit. Leave, after leaving Pendulum, you know, it's a big thing. Well, he for got him. fired. That's not. That's, yeah. That's, that's not. You know, he got fired, and 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 there was a whole you know unfair dismissal thing. It was it was horrible. It was a horrible situation. But that gave him a chance to you know move to, yeah. to San Francisco and like take stock and stuff. And then it was really nice that he came back and came back in your yeah, band. Yeah, it was you know, great. Just, it was great to get a chance to do that. And that was the thing, you know. So so yeah. So for me at that point, it was like this is my chance to do. I've always wanted to do an electronic band. This is the chance, and it was awesome. Met Fleur, who went on to have a lot of success on her own, which is really cool. Um, and um, recently, it's been really fucking awesome. You know, I've been working um, for for a company as a as a basically as a data scientist like doing AI stuff um, something that I've been really interested in for years and I'm building an app around around the things that I've learned as well with some incredible people that I've met so it's it's kind of you know led to me getting a chance to to have a minute to go and suck up some inspiration from a totally different world and bring that back and now I kind of feel ready again and I feel I don't have any illusions of trying to really achieve anything because I feel like I've achieved the things that I, the, more than I could have ever hoped to have achieved. Now what I really want to achieve is just to be happy and make music that I enjoy. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And now you're and, and now you're back to making really gritty drum and bass. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, the wheel has turned full circle. <laughs> There's the gritty drum and bass. But actually, let's just before we do the the, the final tune, let's just talk about. Um, Drive because we, we didn't mention or we haven't yet talked about your cancer experience, but I believe that the well, I from tell us tell us about the history of that and how that that the the your your most recent release kind of started its life back in that in that phase, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so I had um I think it was two thousand and sixteen. You'd remember, right? Yeah, we were working together. Yeah. 2016 I got diagnosed with thyroid cancer and uh, was told that I'd have to have my thyroid taken out and I mean I don't know man it's like fucking that has definitely had a massive impact on me like it's one of those really weird things that you just wouldn't you know so many people I know now have thyroid problems and it is a problem for a, a lot of people yeah I had no idea like how it can affect you and how those things can affect you yeah but I think the combination of where I was kind of feeling a bit like just a bit stressed out really with music at the time was kind of like you know I'm enjoying I was working doing some EDM shit 
back when EDM was cool. And I was kind of getting to work with like Steve Aoki and, you know, these people who like, you know, wh whether you like their music or whatever, are very driven, interesting people. Do you know what I mean? And it was, it was a really interesting period. But at the same time, I was also starting to feel a bit kind of like, I don't really know what I should be doing here. I've got a record label that's like, you know, we want you to make some hit records. Where are the hits at? Mm. And then at the same time, I'm like, I probably feel like I should be doing some, like, cool bangery kind of shit, but, like, where? Because now and, I'm playing and, main stages. And, and, like, and you weren't enjoying the touring process yeah, in that phase really, as well. That was another really part the of the mix. Yeah. And, and, and then, yeah, so then I got ill and had this operation... And then after that, was just totally fucking knocked for six. And you remember, man, because, like, the, the doctor said to me, like, when I was having the operation, I was like, how long is it until I can start doing gigs again? And he was like, what do you mean? He's like, what do you mean gigs? <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like, do you mean going back to work? Like, what do you mean? Like, go to an office? I'm like, no, because I'm a DJ, right, in it. So I've got to play on all stages and shit. Yeah. So... So um, he's like, well, I don't know. He's like, uh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <laughs> maybe like two months, maybe three months. I'm like, what about four weeks? <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> definitely not four weeks. I'm like, what about six weeks? Maybe six weeks. Wouldn't advise it, but maybe six weeks. So we did six weeks or something, and I just clearly wasn't fucking well enough, you know. And I think even it took probably a year after that for everything to level out enough for me to really be feeling... I actually only really think I'm, I'm feeling totally normal now, do you know what I mean? Mm. So it's been a long process. And I think just all of those things kind of coalescing yeah. were the reason that I needed to just have a big, big break, do you know what I yeah. mean, which I've had. But so Drive, like, when I was in hospital having the uh, treatment, I had, like, radio radiation therapy... Um, and was put in isolation <clears throat> and I didn't know this about radiation treatment but you actually get put in a in a room like a lead sealed room um, and the nurse will be behind a lead door when she's talking to you it's yeah. so weird so I was in this room <clears throat> she shut the door and it just dawned on me that I was just like the, there was no way in fucking hell that I was getting out of this room I mean it's funny because uh, I was thinking about this the other day and I've never been to prison, thank God, and, you know, probably count my fucking lucky stars if I couldn't handle one day in a lead room. Mm. But it was really just like, I just had this, like, feeling of, like, you know, whatever you want to do right now, you're fucking stuck here and you can't break out of this room. And so I just started writing Drive and that was kind of what the vibe of Drive was about, was, like, you know, get me out of here, wh wherever here is, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. And in classic music industry, you know, sort of style, it's taken a long time from that inception point to three years later. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy, huh? Yeah, really crazy. Yeah. But yeah. there you go. This is again, Eddie. We, we, we see these examples, don't we, in, um, when we talk to other, other people on these recordings of ideas that start at this point and... It takes, takes two years, years or four yeah, years yeah, or whatever, yeah. seven years for it to come through, and it's life in music, isn't it? It's yeah. The sort of so thing that does, does hearing drive now? Do you? You are an emotional guy. Does it make you feel emotional? Because <laughs> you were, you know, that was a touch and go time for you. You, you must have thought at, at some stage during that time, you must have thought, 
I might not make it. You know, this might spread, and this could be this could be the end of me. Yeah, there was like it was it was crazy because there was the one time that I totally lost it, like during this period, and I just fucking broke down for a minute. And I was with my mum, and we were driving, we were talking about. So the doctor had said, you've got, like, stage five cancer in your thyroid and you have to have it taken out, like, immediately. <clears throat> and I've been looking online and there's a lot of uh, a lot of sort of people, like, thyroid... Uh, th- people that have had to have their thyroid removed that argue that actually there's an element of, like, this cancerous thing in your thyroid that's not totally proven to be a type of cancer that will spread. Hmm. And there's an argument that there are people that believe that you cannot have it taken out and be fine. Hmm. So the guy was saying to me, like, you've got to have it taken out. And I was like, but from what I'm reading, my life is potentially going to be a bit of a nightmare afterwards. And it's not even proven that it needs to be taken out. And my mum was sort of arguing, obviously, you know, because she's great. And she was, like, worried about me. And she was like, you know, shut the fuck up. <laughs> have it taken out, that's what you're being told you need to do. And I was kind of sitting there thinking, like, shit, this is, like, one of those decisions that, you know, is, like, you can't turn back on. Um, <clears throat> and so, yeah, I mean, that was, uh, yeah, that was crazy. And I think, I think like, it's weird because anyone that's had to come to terms with, with dying, right, like, with, with, like, not being here, I think, like, the thing that you sort of, that dawns on you which is, I think, an amazing blessing, actually, to, to experience in your life and then to come to be able to come back from, is that all of this fucking bullshit that seems so important, you know, like, whether it's, like, success is, like, totally meaningless, but, like, all these other things, you know, that we spend so much of our time fucking worrying about, they just absolutely mean fucking nothing. So for me, it was kind of like... I, I was feeling really stressed out about everything... I knew I was so blessed to have the opportunities that I had, but at the same time, it was I wasn't really enjoying it. And whether or not anybody else can understand why you're not enjoying something, you know, to other people be like, well, you're having all these massive hits and you're doing all these shows, like, what could you possibly have to be unhappy about? And they're probably right. But at the same time, like, I think the thing for me that I, w- I wasn't really happy about was that I was really sort of... It always been kind of like sacrificing a big part of my life, you know, for music and not sort of missing weddings, missing important family things and missing my nieces and nephews grow up and whatever. And yeah, just it just just dawned on me, man. I was just like, this is fucking bullshit. You know, like you can do whatever you set your mind to. You've basically proven that you can do the, this crazy shit that nobody thought could happen. The one thing that you don't seem to be capable of doing is having a balanced life, and here's your chance. So, are you going to take it or not? And I just thought, fuck it, I'm going to take it. Do you know what I mean? So here we are. <laughs> here we here we are. Here we are, and let's listen to Drive now. Trailblazers, DJ Fresh. It's wonderful to hear that and to hear, you know, your story behind it. And, and it's wonderful more than anything else to have you 
still with us. And th- th- you're happy, man. And you're, you seem really, you seem so much happier now than in the last time that I saw you, you know, and, and, that, 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 and that's wonderful. I feel the wheels turned full circle for you. So let's, let's um, ask you the question that we ask everybody, which is that, uh, so imagine the aliens have landed and they are surveying this solar system for this huge highway or something and they are deciding which planets to, to destroy and which ones to, to, uh, to keep. Um, what, would you, what song would you play to them to persuade them if you, if you could only persuade them with a song, what song would you persuade them to stay their hand? To say, so it's the tune to save the world. Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Beethoven's Fifth. <laughs> and what do you think that'll do? What do you think? And so, yeah, how, how will that make them feel? <laughs> I don't know, but I reckon it's the best fucking chance we've got. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, um, well. Before we play Beethoven's Fifth, you know. So, what's on the horizon for you now? Um, so, yeah, new single. Um, just working on a bunch of new, very bangery, super underground shit that fucking just like the stuff that my parents used to hate. They're going to hate it again. <laughs> I really didn't enjoy my parents liking my music. It was it was a really stressful time. You know, I want to spend more time with them and less playing the music, whether they hate it or not. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so working on a bunch of new music um, and working on an app, which like I, I'm so excited about. I can't really talk about it yet, but it's like it's one the of those. Right. No, well, I mean, I've been doing, I've been working in AI because I find it interesting. But the app itself is 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 kind of, is a social network. Oh right. So um, and it's a new kind of social network. It's a mobile app. Um, I can't really go into too much detail about it yet, but it's like one of those things that kind of feels like it could potentially be a bit of a groundbreaker. Do you know what I mean? I think there's, so. There's a little bit of irony here. Yeah, mm. so, uh, <laughs> we, we, we wouldn't be surprised, would we? We wouldn't. Could well be. Wow. So wow. So you you I could you could be the next uh, Mark Zuckerberg. It's called Gold Dust. Okay. All right. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. So if anybody wants to sign up for the very limited beta um, to be a beta user, uh, they should go to golddust.io. All right. Golddust.io. All, All right. right. Well, we'll that's, do it. That's, that's where we should end it. Hopefully, you'll be the next Mark Zuckerberg, but much nicer <laughs> uh, and much more truthful and honest. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Somebody um, said something to me the other day, so I know some of the guys that work at Facebook, and I thought this was a really good point, right? So Facebook has got 3 billion users, I think it is. Mm. So in fa- Facebook, one in a million happens 3,000 times a day. <laughs> give me that again. One in a million happens 3,000 times a day wow. because you've got 3 billion users. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you think about how hard it must be to try and... When you think how useless our government... I think, like, personally, I think... I'm not defending Mark Zuckerberg, and I actually don't know that much about the specifics, and I hate the way that Facebook works. It was one of the inspirations for what we're doing. But at the same time, I think that he's doing something that's never, ever been done before, and when you think how badly our governments manage fucking everything, you know, I think he gets a pretty bad rep. Do you know what I mean? I think, like, I think what he's dealing with is an uncontrollable beast. Do you know what I mean? Well, don't get me started, because he's running government ads without fact-checking them. Right. Well, let's, well, let's, let's, you know, let's... Yeah. Let, and, you know, you could argue that Brexit happened because of him 
you know, yeah, I, well, I'm not. Yeah, I'm definitely. I'm yeah, I'm definitely not defending him. But I think what I was just saying, really, with that was just that we've we've never seen anything like Facebook before. No. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's, oh, it's yeah, a it's phenomenal world, thing. It? And and well, my point was, I wish you the the level of success that he had. I can guarantee you that if I have it, it will be used in a much more uh, beneficial way for humanity. <laughs> Well, both Nick and I know, know that that's going to happen. All right. Love you, man. Thanks, Thank you, Dan. Thanks so much. Thank you so Thanks, much, bro. and good luck with everything, man. Thank you. Trailblazers. Blazers. Deezer. Deezer. Originals.